Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the debut grand opening of Mad Villain Bistro Bed and Breakfast Bar Grill Cafe Lounge on the Water. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Terry Talks Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. And I'm Ethan Terry. And today we are going to be looking back at the 2010s through the art that was created during the last decade. We're going to reflect on some of the best media of the last 10 years. That includes anything from movies to television shows to music to apps to concepts. Just kind of the art that was created in the 2010s that defined either the era or was influential or just important to us. Later on, we're going to have a bunch of conversations from you all about beloved pieces of media that you enjoyed over the last 10 years. Uh, But we're going to start with a conversation between me, Ethan, and Ryan. So, Ryan, I think we're going to start with you. What is your beloved piece of media from the 2010s? Uh, Yeah, so I decided to pick Teens of Denial by the indie rock band Carsey Headrest. This record came out in 2016 and was released by the indie rock label Matador, which if you've never heard of, is a really great indie label. Sonic Youth used to be on it. Um, Angel Olsen, Snail Mail, it's just coming out with some of the best indie rock currently. And uh, it was also directed by Steve Fisk, who is uh, the Spider-Man villain and is also um, the record producer for Nirvana at Soundgarden for a little bit. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about the content of the album. Yeah, so I'm going to talk first, I think, about the history of Carsey Headrest, because I think it's a really important one for for the music scene right now. Mm -hmm. Um, He's So Will Toledo's the lead singer, and he started making albums in the backseat of his car in his senior year of high school, and just uploading them onto Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. And um, at first, they were very experimental, very weird. Even for me, some, some of the stuff is just super abrasive and hard to get through but he really started to come into his own and have this real rough indie rock aesthetic and overly personal in a very endearing way so some of his early records like three and your back is killing me baby and the original version of twin fantasy are just amazing and there's it's even better knowing how little he had to work with Mm -hmm. and so then he got signed after releasing his most ambitious solo effort yet Uh, which is called um, Nervous Young Man. And uh, that's a double album, so it's just two hours of material that he wrote by himself in college, which is so dense and so crazy. He got signed after that, and he started making this album in 2013, and he really wanted it to be a concise experience, uh, especially for live performances. He wanted it to really work well with um, a live audience. So he... And all of the songs that didn't make it on the record went to his EP, How to Leave Town, which is an hour long and is also very good. It's the last thing he released before uh, working in a major studio. Yeah, it's a it's an album about growing up. 
It's about being a young adult. It's about not knowing what you're doing in life. No one really telling you what to do in life. Yeah. And um, I think it definitely shows up in a lot of the, I mean, some of the song, even the song titles, there's like uh, drunk drivers, uh, drugs with friends. Um, it's just a very personal album. And it's one, maybe less so than his other stuff. Maybe it's a little more general, but in a way that's very um, uh, endearing mm-hmm. and likable. And I think that's always been a quality of his work that I've really admired. Especially, I'm trying to make my own music. And seeing just this guy, this senior from high school, decide, I'm going to make my own music and I'm not going to care what anyone says. And then now he's with a major major record label. Mm -hmm. He has a documentary about himself. He remade one of his best albums that he made in his car. Mm -hmm. It's such a crazy thing to think very much appreciate where he's coming from so talk more about the specifics with you when did you find this and why is it meaningful to you yeah so i found the record in my junior year of high school which was probably the same year it came out roughly it was near the end of the year in may and i discovered it probably october november Mm -hmm. and um it was just a brand of rock music that i hadn't experienced or came to appreciate where it's it's distorted it's kind of like it's 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 a garage band they sound like a garage band but they have this level of lyrical depth and this level of interest that keeps you there and oh and this roughness too that um i had finally came to appreciate from the genre and i really love indie rock but some of the stuff i love probably ended before listening to carsey address probably ended up in the more experimental or poppy side, mm-hmm. you know, whether it be Radiohead or Matt and Kim. But this was a band that was just straight rock and in a very great way. And also it hit me at a time where I probably was not at the best uh, mentally. I was doing, yeah. it was during Driver's Ed, which uh, Ethan Kinnatone was one of the worst times of my life. Uh, yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, um, it was just, I, I think I didn't have much faith in my friends. I didn't mm-hmm. think I had a very good social group. And a lot of this album revolves around themes of just loneliness and isolation and being young and not knowing what to do and all of your friends being high all the time (laughs) and you being depressed and other people telling you not to be depressed. You know, it's it's a really, um, uh, there's this extended passage in the song, The Ballad of Costa Concordia, where he says, how was I supposed to know to pick up my backpack after playing basketball how was i supposed to know how to turn on a tube amp how was i supposed to do know to do all these things that no one's ever told me to do and it's a really powerful moment in the record where it's just the spoken word in this 10 minute amazing song of just him airing his grievances wishing he knew how to get through life and um that that's a great title too because the coast of concordia is a ship that uh (laughs) was uh, dis- it, it sank before it even got off the dock. <laughs> really? Yeah. So that's a really, I think that's a powerful meta- metaphor. Like, I'm barely even in my adult life and I already feel like I'm sinking. It's that idea that, like, these ex- expectations exist, but I never got the rule book of what they were. Yeah. Or, like, how to do it. I think about the one time I started Mom's car while it was in the garage. And she came out and was like, what are you doing? You're trying to kill us all. <laughs> and this was at a very young age. and But it kind of captured that idea of like, no one told me how not to fuck up, you know? Yeah. So I'm sorry that I fucked up. 
and that's something that's so potent on the album yeah like um there's something i love there's a line it's also a name of another one of his albums weirdly enough where uh off dr- drugs with friends where he says we're all just teens of style you know we're all just trying to fit in we're all just chasing a trend and but he does it in a way that doesn't feel condescending or yeah. patronizing he does it in a way that feels like i know what it's like yeah i can relate to this um, or the last passage where he repeats drugs are friends and then he flips it, uh, drugs are better with friends and then he flips it with friends are better with drugs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's very clever. And seeing him live, he came to where we live and, um, it was in this old venue that used to be a church mm-hmm. that they turned into this concert hall and we'd also seen Vampire Weekend there. Yes, yeah. And it was just a transcendental experience. It was just a, a seven person band. Oh, I should talk about the other band members. So Will Toledo is the lead singer. Ethan Ives is the lead guitarist. Um, Seth Dobby is the bassist, and Andrew Katz is the drummer. And his Instagram is amazing; <laughs> it's very funny. Um, but just seeing them live, it was like I've rarely seen a band be that tight as a unit, be that so aware of what the other person's going to do and how they're going to do it, and how just the pieces flourish. They feel so grand, and some of them are just about you know doing drugs with friends or um connect the dots is also a great track because it's him telling his parents he's never going to get a real job because <laughs> he's a musician yeah it's it's a very clever uh look at what it's like to grow up the way he did which admittedly is probably a pretty bizarre way to grow up where you're venting all of your emotions into the music you make mm-hmm. in the back of your car and yeah. the mic is propped up by the car seat address that's where the band name comes from <gasps> yeah <laughs> So it's, um, yeah, it's just a strange, especially if you're in your 20s, mid, late teens, 20s, it's a strange experience because it's pers- it's weird, it's very personal to him, yet it's very relatable. And I think that goes for Twin Fantasy too, which is an album. I go between which one yeah, I like more yeah. a lot, but that one's just about a messy relationship yet at college. And it's so specific mm-hmm. that it somehow becomes relatable. And it's, I don't know. I think that's always the case, that the more specific and raw and vulnerable, the easier it is to relate to something. Yeah, and I think that's definitely appeal with his music. And also, like, he's just... Some of the some of the stuff, I have no clue how... Destroyed by Hippie Powers is a great track. <laughs> that, yeah. I, I, I always took it as him being at a shitty party he doesn't want to be at. <laughs> and um, it's just... It's it's a very weird... Unforgiving Girl helps me a lot. That is a great track. And... Um, there's a reference in Nervous Young Man afterwards in the monologue, or Nervous Young and Humans, where he's talking and he's like, you've just been talking about girls. What do you know about girls? <laughs> Which I always thought was funny. Mm-hmm. It's just a weird, it's not like, it's it's an hour and ten minutes. So it's a it's a dense listen. Um, I didn't even talk about Drunk Drivers. That's like the That's like the climax of the album to me. That's when it's like, that's when he best explains what it's like to be young and drunk and stupid and not know your way home. <laughs> I, I always seen it as like this post-party mortem where it's like you're drunk and you're just trying to find your way home because you can't drive. And and he uses that to expand on the metaphor of like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want, I'm walking home drunk from a party. I don't understand what's going on. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I'm not happy. That's always something that, and, and in the live version, he adds this verse that's like, um, if you don't want to talk, then you can sleep in the backseat, is one of the lines. Mm-hmm. And it's just, 
there's something about it where it's like I am talking about a real experience that I had, and I'm sure it's similar to an experience you had. Yeah. And that's that's always something powerful about Will's music to me is that he doesn't hold back. Thanks, Ryan, for sharing. And I'm glad you got me into them. And <laughs> seeing them in concert was pretty amazing oh, experience. I also would like to mention Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It was between this and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, <laughs> which is my favorite movie ever. Yeah. But I figured this, where Scott Pilgrim had an undercurrent of like me loving music and probably a lot of media because of that. Like I got into a lot of music because of Scott Pilgrim, too. Like Broken Social Scene and Metric and whoever else back did the... Um, Sex Bob Bomb songs. I felt like that had more of a subconscious effect on me, whereas this had a very direct effect. I can say, I can point to things and be like, I remember that moment in the context of listening to this album. Yeah, so. definitely. And it also got me in, I mean, it got me into making music. Mm-hmm. I was like, if this man can do it again in the backseat of his car, <laughs> why can't I? Yeah. And I think that's a very important, it's a very important thing that isn't stressed enough. And I think this band is proving that you don't need the best producer, you don't need the best voice, you don't need the best instrumentals, you just need the passion and the will to make good music, and people will listen to it. And sometimes you'll make masterpieces. I think there's something very powerful about that. For all media, not just music, but maybe music's the easiest one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. Ethan, why don't we move on to you? What is your beloved piece of media? From the 2010s. So, the piece of media I chose is Marvel's The Avengers, which was released in 2012. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people. So when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. It's the sixth film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's like the culmination of Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Captain America, and Thor. It came out when I was about 11 years old. It came out that May of 2012. It kind of like marks a certain period in my life, because like I'm 11 years old, and like I'm just entering like puberty, I guess you would say. Like I'm entering an era in which like it's weird to say, but like nuance is introduced to my life. Like I'm growing up, and I realize not everything's black and white. So it has been interesting. To watch the Avengers in the MCU, especially at this period, there was no nuance in the movies, and like we could, like you can argue that there is, but for the most part, everyone can agree that like Loki and the like everyone wants the Avengers to win and Loki to lose. Mm -hmm. Where like movies like The Dark Knight, which I know isn't in the 2010s, but like that has a certain like nuance, and so I gravitated more towards the Avengers in the MCU, especially at this point. I would argue the MCU is more nuanced now. Yeah, it's it has matured as I matured. Mm Which is something I can go into, but the Avengers was like an escape from like, I don't want to say harsh because like I had a relatively good childhood, but like I could just like turn my brain off and watch the Avengers Mm -hmm. and everyone like wanted the same outcome and I always knew there's, it was, things were going to end well. So it was like an escape from reality at a certain age that like I desperately needed it. And so, and it also marks a change in like the film industry and how I view films. Because, like, I was never that into film. And then I saw The Avengers, and I'm like, movies can be cool and be good. Like, I, I can, it can appeal to a certain nerd culture or, like, a certain type of genre, like a superhero film. But also, I don't need to be ashamed to like it, you know? Where, like, the Spider-Man movies, even though I loved them as a kid, like, you look back at them, they're not good. Like, they're, yeah. like, the, the Raimi films 
are not good. Amazing Spider-Man came out the same year as Avengers. That's definitely not good. <laughs> like there, there are old and the X-Men movies, looking back at them sometimes, are not that impressive. But like I constantly, I can sit down and watch Avengers right now, and I, I know I'll be satisfied. And I don't think it's that great of a movie. It's not my favorite MCU movie, and it's not my favorite movie of the 2010s. I don't even know if it's my favorite movie in 2012, because Jack Reacher came out that year. Oh, <laughs> and Jack Reacher's a great film. Perfect average movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, it defines, a, it sparks an era in my life, and in, in the film industry especially, where a certain type of genre is shown to work. Because, like, Iron Man was great. Like, Iron Man's a good film. And we're like, oh, wow, Iron Man's better than you thought. But, like... Captain America, Thor, and especially Incredible Hulk are not good. Like, are not good films. Like, they're fine at best and bad if you're the Incredible Hulk. But like, <laughs> they they introduced an idea and a concept into the film industry where it's like these types of films, these franchise films that can have certain films leading up to them or like have a bunch of hype around it. Like, films didn't have this type of attention. Like, and you can see that in like box office numbers. Like, consistently, Marvel is topping one film after another with one of their new films right and so it marks a change in my interest in film and how i view going to the movies because like i saw the avengers and i was like it was an event so yeah. then it made me interested in because one day i do want to create film so mm-hmm. it's like i want to make that event for people like i want to make that event and uh, so but like as the mcu grew on and as i matured like the mcu did as well so like Things like Thor Ragnarok or like a, the other Avengers movies have, and even like Winter Soldier is like when the MCU matured, yeah. introduced nuance. And, but like the Avengers is so devoid of like a grayness. It, it really is black and white. And like I appreciate that. And that's just like something that was not found in other media that I consumed when I was that young. You appreciated like the escapism in the sense that this is a world with certainty yeah this there's always the good guys are going to win and the bad guys are going to lose and that is something that like you kind of because like at the end of dark knight you don't feel good afterwards no the joker won the joker won and so like as an 11 year old especially as a kid at this time like you kind of need like i need a hero to win i think they cared too yeah like i think there were a lot of films coming out that scratched that same like nerd culture itch but they were just bad movies and they weren't made by people who cared i don't think michael bay cared about transformers i don't think the people who cared about amazing spider-man i don't think the people who made amazing amazing Mm spider-man cared about amazing spider-man took a lot to get that out (laughs) like i don't like amazing (laughs) spider-man yes yes i don't think brian singer was that attached to x-men for sure and like it definitely like these it's still like a corporate funded made for profit movie Mm -hmm. but for some reason it doesn't feel like that maybe because Kevin Feige is so good at what he does, or Josh Sweden did yeah. a great job. I was going to say, Josh Sweden's like the beacon of nerd culture directors. For sure. Until but, he made Justice League. But it is still, <laughs> Avengers was still made by like a corporate board. And it's, oh, yeah. like the MCU in general tends to be, maybe less so than Transformers and stuff, but it is like a corporate funded movie. But at the time in my life, I needed to latch onto something that was certain when like you were going through this period where not everything's black and white. Yeah. And so that was very important to me. And it, it did influence how I think now. And I think it's important to me for the most part. Can you talk a little bit more about what it's been like growing up with the MCU? Because no. I think I was the perfect age, but you guys might even be more so in the sense of like, you're seven when Iron Man comes out, 11 yeah. when Avengers comes out. Like, that's pretty awesome. Well, like, so when I'm seven, when Iron Man comes out, and just this 
the first phase of movies. Like, um, they're, like, kind of whatever. They're, like, dumb popcorn films. And then yeah. Avengers comes out. Arguably still just, like, a popcorn superhero movie. Yeah. And then I enter... It marks the beginning of, like, the puberty. And, like, I latch onto the Avengers. And then it slowly introduces me to nuance and more unique ideas. Mm-hmm. Where, like, when a soldier is, like, oh, everything you knew about S.H.I.E.L.D. and all this is wrong. And then things like Thor Ragnarok are, like, oh... That Loki character that you hated can be, like, become a favorite. As the MCU went on, it matured, and I also matured. So I think it's interesting that the Avengers, like, marks that maturity. Because, like, I could say Iron Man, but it really didn't. Like, the way I view Iron Man and all the Phase 1 movies, I view them the same. They're just kind of, like, whatever. Like, they're there. And they don't seem like, they don't feel like they have a purpose. And they were never integral to my life. But the Avengers marks, and the the MCU, post-Avengers has like somehow grew up with me yeah and that's just like something that i found i like i think about it a lot like it's just interesting for sure i mean to be 18 when uh avengers endgame comes, endgame out. comes out yeah no it's definitely cool and it's uh crazy. yeah so it's like and also i can relate certain experiences to my life in like oh this this moment is kind of like this interaction in this movie or yeah. it's like oh i've been spider-man far from home but i've also been Thor and Thor Ragnarok. Like I've also I've ex- I've felt those feelings that those characters have felt. So and you grow up with these people. So like what other movies like where it's just like a single movie. Like I known Thor since I was nine, or and yeah. I've known Iron Man since I was seven. Yeah. And so like you watch, it's not just the MCU maturing, but it's also these characters maturing and going <laughs> through changes while you do. So it's like oh at this certain page in my life, like say oh I'm sixteen, this was the Iron Man for me. Like, that was Iron Man for me. And it's cool because you jump between different characters at certain points in your life. And so, like, it's just interesting to, like, think back on certain moments and how I tie myself to certain MCU movies, certain MCU characters. And But it really does all come back to, like, Marvel's The Avengers. Because that was the start of, like, an attachment and a relationship with the MCU and with movies in general that happened when I was young and, like, at an important time in my life. I always think about how um, how Guardians of the Galaxy is a movie that is like one of my top five, ten favorite movies of all time yeah. outside of the MCU. Yeah. Yeah. They made me love a movie that has nothing to do with going on going on with the overall plot, and I just love it because I love the movie. But also, I remember pulling into our theater and the option, me and Clayton were going to see it, <laughs> and the options were that or Lucy. Yeah. I saw Lucy. I'm so sorry. It's not my 2010 pick. 2010's pick. And you you saw Guardians in our crowded living room, not being able to hear a thing. And I still loved it, yeah. Yeah. So I think that speaks to the strength of the people making these movies. Mm -hmm. Where It's like, we're going to make a movie that we want to make that has nothing to do with the MCU about these characters no one's ever heard of and no one cares about. And it's going to be one of the best movies of the decade. Definitely. I think the uh, MCU has been a defining point for my life as well. Mm -hmm. Not only the movies, but also the people I got to share it with and how that changed and stayed the same as I matured and grew grew up, as you're saying. Yeah, definitely. So, my defining piece of media for the 2010s, not only for me, but also for culture, I believe, is the 2015 album by Kendrick Lamar, To Pimp a Butterfly. On the surface level, you look at the songs on this album, and you get a whole range of emotions. So, you have... Songs that are triumphant and good mood songs like I and All Right. But you also have the more heartbreaking songs in You to the deeply pensive songs in How Much a Dollar Costs 
So individually, each song is able to satisfy any mood you're kind of in. And it gives the album a strength that I think sometimes hip-hop albums don't necessarily have of being able to tell strong overarching narrative while also having individual songs that are listen listenable at basically any point so to kind of go into that the album as a whole idea this album is just a beautiful journey from it starts with kendrick kind of controlled by uncle sam and lucifer and his vices and his survivor's guilt and this notion that he's now famous now due to the strength of Good Kid Mad City, due to the popularity of that album. And it ends with this renewed kind of devotion to God and to self-love and a dedication to the black community. And this was probably the first time I listened to an album where I saw that kind of growth in the character and the artist. So this was a window into the idea that albums can be used for storytelling, something that Good Kid Mad City also does incredibly well, but this was my first Kendrick album, really. And he goes on to accept this leader of this role as leader of the black community and of the hip hop industry, but because he's Kendrick Lamar, he has to remain humble, pun intended, by the end of it. And we hear the interview he has with his idol. Tupac on Mortal Man, where he's able to sit down with him and kind of question this growth he just went through to kind of reflect on the piece of art that he just made with an artist who, in in his opinion, was never able to blossom into that kind of butterfly. And that contained reflection within the album is something I had never experienced and don't know if I have since. But personally, the album just means so much to me because... First off, I think it increased my capacity for empathy. You look at a song like The Blacker the Berry, which in my opinion, probably one of the best songs of all time, definitely of the 2010s. Um, And it just opened my eyes into struggles that I've never had to face because of my privilege. And this notion of survivor's guilt that he brings in at the end of the song those that final verse like still brings me to tears every time I hear it. I think it's one of the more powerful verses on the album and in hip hop in general. And kind of speaking to hip hop, this was my window into that genre, which is now easily my favorite genre. Before Kendrick Lamar, I kind of listened to alternative rock, which I still listen to on occasion now, but I feel like hip hop offered that kind of storytelling that the alt alternative rock I was listening to didn't necessarily. And without To Pimp a Butterfly, I never would have gotten into Good Kid Mad City, which is ironically probably my favorite Kendrick album, but I wouldn't be able to say that without To Pimp a Butterfly. And it also got me into the music of Childish Gambino and Kanye West and Vince Staples and Run the Jewels and Janelle Monae and just these artists that litter all of my playlists and the songs I'm constantly going back to even if I first heard it years ago and it also got me into artists like Frank Ocean or Tyler the Creator who besides being some of the most talented musicians working right now they opened this window of understanding for me in terms of 
the coming out process because I discovered them as I was kind of going through that process. And it helped me reflect back on past relationships and what they kind of meant given my knowledge of myself today. And I never would have had that reflection without To Pimp a Butterfly opening that door. And then finally, and probably most importantly, Kendrick Lamar has brought me closer to people. I think about visiting my friend Ben in Connecticut over the summer when he really got into Kendrick Lamar and we spent the entire weekend just listening to his discography. Or I think about my friend Max saving all of the Kendrick Lamar songs until I got to his Halloween party so that I could listen to him, so that I could talk with him about them or our other friends that we had spread the gospel of King Kendrick Lamar to. And then again, most importantly, it brought me closer to you guys, I think, because I attribute uh, getting into this album mostly to you, Ethan. I think you and Jack O'Brien, who hosted the Crack Podcast, were the ones constantly getting me to listen to him. But then Ryan saying you need to listen to, was it Swimming Pools? It was Swimming Pools, yeah. Or All Right was like the... Because I had seen the YouTuber Todd in the Shadows put Swimming Pools on his top 10 best songs of that year. Yeah. Yeah. Hit songs. It was. I think it was the only one that was a hit song. So like, I don't know if Good Kid, Mad City was. So with Ethan say. acting as this like consistent influence and Ryan as this final catalyst that got me to listen to him, it brought me closer to you guys. I feel like, and I look back, and the Newark concert where we saw Kendrick Lamar is without oh a doubt one of my favorite memories of the 2010s. Yeah. Just the video playing. And then you hear the beginning of DNA and just pyrotechnics and Kendrick jumps out on stage. That was like the happiest I've ever been. And I wouldn't have had that level of happiness if you two didn't get me into Kendrick Lamar. And I wouldn't have felt that level of happiness if I wasn't standing next to both of you while enjoying that. I have a funny history with Kendrick Lamar because it also got me into hip hop. And it just opened me to a world of music that I'd never experienced and I thoroughly love. I listened to To Pimp a Butterfly the same day as the Grammys. <laughs> so I had felt the highs and lows of listening to one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life and then seeing Taylor Swift win instead of Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a weird day. But it was um I love I love that record. It also it got me into hip hop, it got me into jazz, weirdly enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very jazzy album. Yeah, that's not weird at all. It's very yeah, yeah. jazz. But it, it's a weird one to like break into the genre but it's a it really did change the way i view music and especially because i'd only ever allowed myself to be exposed to pop and folk or sorry rock and folk music and so it just made me realize oh i'm missing out and that was something that was really important to me my development as a person and my development musically ethan this is one of your favorite albums yeah definitely well this is my favorite album uh kendrick lamar I have, like, a weird relationship with Kendrick Lamar because it's, like, I wasn't into music. I was into the idea of music probably more so than music until I was introduced to Kendrick Lamar and just hit at a weird time. And the way he presents a world and a character, especially on To Pimp a Butterfly, yeah. is very, like, opens your eyes. And, like, it, there, it's a place of privilege where I'm coming home. Like, I'm in rural New York, like, white kid going to school, and I have life good. And, yeah. like... Listening to, to Pimp a Butterfly on the bus, like, 
I don't want to say it makes me grateful, but makes me empathize with yeah. people who are less fortunate. And I, despite this, and even Kendrick says this, like everyone can relate to his music to a certain extent. Definitely. And it's always been fun to see the world through Kendrick's eyes and see the character of Kendrick Lamar develop. And that there's nothing more monumental than to pimp a butterfly in his life. And that seeps over into my life because Kendrick Lamar is such a character and such a figurehead mm-hmm. like in my growing up and so it's definitely interesting that you picked this because it is great <laughs> he did the soundtrack for a Marvel movie so yeah, yeah how cool is that yeah. yeah thank you guys so much for sitting down and chatting about some of our favorite of the decade we'll be back at the end to do some outro and footnotes but Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy all the conversations we got to have with different people to talk about all the great art we got in the 2010s. Ted Ryan, and you may recognize my voice from another of Clayton's podcasts. You have to watch this podcast where the two of us discuss our favorite films or films that we don't like. (laughs) Uh, I'm an artist. I am a student at RIT. I'm studying illustration. And the piece of media that I would like to talk about is Dungeons and Dragons. You know, when Clayton came to me and approached me for this topic, I kind of didn't know what to pick. I was thinking of doing favorite movies or TV shows, but I think Dungeons & Dragons holds like a very special place in my heart because it wasn't so much a thing that I consumed, but something my friends and I created communally. And it's just been like a cornerstone of my life until recently, but it still continues to like be a part of my life in a different way. When I was in, I think, 11th grade, I was on, like, Reddit or some website, and I saw a meme about D&D where it was, like, how every D&D party starts out, and it was, like, a Lord of the Rings cast photo, (laughs) and then how every D&D party ends, and it's, like, a Monty Python and the Holy Grail cast photo. And in the comment section of that post, I just read, like, the funniest comments ever of people sharing their stories. And the next day at lunch, I told people, like, listen to all these funny stories, you know. And then one person had played D&D and that they were in an ongoing game. So he introduced me to the game and I learned the ropes. And we played in this little toy shop in town (laughs) that was, like, maybe, like, seven feet by, like, seven and a half feet, you know, in, like, dimensions of the room. It was cramped. Mm -hmm. And... We would play D&D there, and we would play other board games, but it was mostly D&D. Uh, and it was fun. It was wacky. It was stupid. It was all right, you know? And it was, you know, learning the ropes of the game. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where I wasn't really enjoying it anymore, and I thought, like, you know, I could, I feel like I could do better. And so I took it upon myself that summer to start a campaign with all my friends, and... I bought the books and we were playing 5th edition 
and we just started a campaign and we've done over, I think, 70 sessions over the past five years. Um, we've done multiple campaigns. I myself have done, I have one ongoing that is the one that we just started. Mm-hmm. I did one that was like a spinoff that ended and that ran for like a couple months. And then I've, I think in total, I've done like four or five campaigns. Wow. And I think what captivated me about D&D was that it was like in high school, I didn't really have a strong creative outlet. Um, I was really much like very focused on schoolwork and academics and, you know, just being a good student, really. Mm-hmm. And I think through D&D, I rediscovered my like creative side and it gave me that outlet to write and act and most importantly, draw. I, you know, I would just like draw like several illustrations for every session, every session, you know, like you meet this character, you go to this place, you know, you find this loot. The game was like a self-perpetuating, like exciting creative outlet where I was creating it. Mm -hmm. And then like that inspired me to create. And then the stuff that inspired me to create made me want to play that more, you know? So it was like a, it was like this like interesting relationship between those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it helped me grow confidence as a person I think it helped me become more assertive. 80% of the time, I'm the dungeon master, so that means corralling people and shutting people down. Um, and, yeah, it was it was just a lot of fun. I, I have so many memories of those crazy moments that we still remember fondly, you know, when this person pulled that crazy thing off. And, you know, there's so many stories, and I could just talk about it for hours of all the different memories. Well, give us one. There was um, this one section of the campaign where players were traversing through this kind of magical enchanted forest Mm -hmm. called the Dragonwood Forest. And it was like kind of like giant oak trees, like the Californian red red oaks with like giant animals and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And they found out that there was like the enemy forces have... Uh, assembled in this castle, this ancient fortress up north called the Throne of the Wolf, and that there was something massive happening, and that like there was huge enemy troop movements all heading towards this location. Like all their antagonists were joining forces at this place, and they're like, "We have to intervene. We have to figure out what they're doing." Mm-hmm. They found out that basically one of the five dragon gods was being revived by a necromancer cult. Mm-hmm. And so, at this point, the party had split in two because of in-game and out-of-game drama. Mm -hmm. So, I was, like, running multiple sessions per week of both of these parties traversing through this forest. And, like, multiple things happening. And, like, what would happen in one party would affect what happened in the other. And one half, they went to the Throne of the Wolf. And they did this whole thing where they got disguises. They infiltrated it in, like, a Scooby-Doo matter and they made their way through this castle and there was this epic boss fight where they led an army against the evil (laughs) army and it was this huge battle in a cathedral and this like character that was like an antagonist but also a friend like a ally we can't trust type of situation Mm -hmm. he was like the most powerful character they had met at that point and then you know they weren't able to stop the necromancers in time and so the dragon god was revived, and the first thing he did was, like, he ripped that 
per that character in half. So oh like, my gosh. Establish like this guy is dangerous, mm-hmm. you know? And it was just like such an engaging fight. And it was like, it was like, oh, I can't wait for this turn to end. Cause it was like, everyone was at the edge of their seat and like shouting and like yelling orders. And like, everyone was so in focus and in sync. It was so captivating. And, you know, it's just like when, it, when, when you see a player really get into it, it's like, it's so rewarding mm-hmm. that like people allow themselves to give themselves over to you for the sake of this story that we're telling together. Like mm-hmm. there's no hint of irony or sarcasm. You know, it's like we are doing something real right now. And yeah. that's, it's such a rewarding feeling as a creator and mm-hmm. also just as a friend, you mm-hmm. know, like it was really wholesome and nice. You know, the fight was brutal. It was insane. And in the end, uh, one of the players, he picked up the sword of that character that they couldn't trust. And he ran up the back of the dragon and got a double nat 20. And he ended up oh. doing like 150 damage to the dragon. <laughs> and it was insane. And mm-hmm. everyone went crazy. And then that character found out that he was the son of the emperor and the empire <laughs> they were in. And people's like minds were blown because it was like a plot I'd been planting seeds for yeah. from like at least a month or two and then it all like clicked it, it was just fantastic and it was mm-hmm. just there was just that period in my life senior year where we just played two or three times a week and that was like my whole life was D, you mm-hmm. know i was always writing i was always drawing and we were always playing and i, I just loved D for that reason and i continued it into college mm-hmm. you i yes i've been a part of a couple campaigns now Yes, we we did another campaign, mm-hmm. and that was awesome. And, you know, I feel like another thing I, I haven't really mentioned is that, you know, some people play D&D for fairly short sessions, like, you know, one to three hours. Mm-hmm. We would play D&D for, like, marathon sessions from, like, five to nine and sometimes even 12 hours. I think that was the longest I've ever went. Mm-hmm. There's something about spending a whole day with people in a room. Mm-hmm playing a game like that and it's like you really just connect with them in a way that i don't know if is possible in another mm-hmm. medium uh because you're bonding both in and out of game and you know there's side for there's room for chit chats and just general conversations mm-hmm. and i feel like i grew really close to a lot of people through D. Mm-hmm. um whereas before i was just like casual friends with them that commitment to like communal storytelling to the point where you all get together on a Saturday and spend 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. Yes. telling this story together. It's few things can do that other than role playing games. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny because like when you hear when I hear someone else talk about their D and D or tabletop gaming experience, I never find myself particularly interested or captivated in like their stories. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something where like you really have to be there to like get it it just like fully grabs my imagination Mm -hmm. and i think DD helped me discover the path i wanted to take and Mm -hmm. that is like pursuing a career in comics Mm -hmm. and graphic novels because i get to combine both the narrative and the illustrative aspect of that one of my big projects right now is that i'm taking the story of my DD game Mm -hmm. and now turning it into a comic Mm -hmm. and that's you know i may no longer be playing the game itself but the same train of imagination for the last 
five or six years is still alive and strong you know yeah, it's 100 percent, and it's it's really fun to look at all my notes and just like see like just the the, the wide berth of everything i've done you know just like pages and pages of lore and illustration and mm-hmm. all these characters and like worlds and relationships and plot hooks and like everything it's like you know it's like i, I feel like sometimes i struggle to make sense of my life like reality mm-hmm. but the the one i've constructed for this narrative this comic this D world is like so perfect like that's what i want in media mm-hmm. like i i'll never find the thing that checks all the boxes for me so i'll create it myself like i'll be i'll create the media that i want to mm-hmm. love couldn't have had that without D. yes thanks for coming on ted thank you i forgot to plug it at the beginning but if you'd like to see the comic that i just mentioned i sometimes post pages in progress on my instagram at these fine times thank you for having me on clayton this was a lot of fun yeah thanks ted Bye. Hi, everybody. I'm Amanda Popovsky. Um, what can I say? I'm 21 years old. I'm a student <laughs> in Buffalo, New York, and I'm also a freelance web designer. If you'd like freelance web design, let me know. Um, <laughs> but my piece is not so much a piece today as it is a piece of media, I guess you would say. Um, and it's Instagram, because when I was thinking about things that were really influential to me and how I consume entertainment, it's more through apps, it's more through my phone, less than through Netflix or books or anything else, even though I am a huge book person. So if you didn't know, Instagram is a social media platform, arguably the OG social media platform aside from Facebook, (laughs) and it's mostly image-based There's a hashtagging system. There's an algorithm. It's where businesses and personal lives kind of collide. There's meme pages. There's everything on Instagram. And I looked this up. It came out on October 6th, 2010. So we just made the cut. Oh, perfect. And so Instagram is really influential to me, not always in the best way. Um, But I got an iPhone in 2010 on April 11th. 2010 for my 12th birthday um and i like to consider myself one of the first few people that got an instagram Mm -hmm. um i know that i was one of the first few at least in my friend group and i would just take like really dumb well they weren't dumb to me (laughs) just like uh really simple pictures of birds and leaves and things in my backyard and it soon became both like an artistic explosion and kind of an artistic implosion So explosion because I was able to express myself with these filters and do really fun things. And my parents wouldn't let me show my face on social media. So I had to get creative (laughs) about how I did like self-portraiture and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also a really good escape for me. Good in air quotes. When my grandpa got really sick, Mm -hmm. I found myself. This was the beginning stage of me um, escaping into social media. When life got tough. And I remember just spending hours and hours editing photos. Um, I think I even started like a little fo- photography challenge thing with people my age from around the world. We used Kick, if you remember Kick, That could be <laughs> also be an influential app. And so when, when my grandpa got sick and toward the end of his life, it was really important for me to kind of avoid that because I was like 12 or 13 and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I turned to Instagram. And it's continued to be kind of 
something that I escape to, something that I find myself using maybe a little bit more than I want to. Um, and especially in high school with the rise of the selfie and with Instagram as kind of like a social display case, yeah. it became a really big validation tool for me because as everybody probably experiences, the more likes that you get on the photo, um, the better you feel about yourself. And I started noticing that when I posed a certain way or when I showed certain parts of my body, I would get more likes. And that kind of fed into this message at a young age that I'm still dealing with now. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I've grown, Instagram has grown with me and it's become a tool for my business. Mm -hmm. I had a life coaching business. I closed that for a variety of reasons and now I do web design but I don't use my Instagram as like um like a business page necessarily. It's more just a place going back to that 2010 12-year-old Mandy um just a place for artistic expression and playing around with filters and aesthetic and things like that. Um and it's still kind of a habit, it's still something that I turn to and escape into. I've gone down many, many um, IGTV holes and just clicking through like one celebrity's friend group and then the next and the next and the next and I'm somehow now in Uganda, things <laughs> like that. Um, it's it's a much healthier place for me to be, I think, than maybe it was earlier in my life because mm -hmm. it's more curated with the people I follow and you know more positive message mm -hmm. accounts and people I look up to. But uh, it was really, really influential for the past, what, nine, ten years. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're the first person to pick an influential piece of media that also had some negative impacts in oh, their life really? in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of your strategies for kind of managing that, the positive self-expression and the admitted negative aspects of social media that we all feel besides kind of curating what you're seeing? Mm, that's really good. Curating was big for yeah. me. Like I unfollowed people that I felt like I needed to follow since high school, mm -hmm. like people that were on the very periphery of my friend group. And they just like, I would compare myself to them. Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't make me feel good. And I was like, they probably don't care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, that's that. And then I use um, in the iPhone now, there's a social media timer, like you can use timers mm -hmm. um, and it kind of locks you out of the app after a certain amount of time. So today, actually, I just downloaded or I deleted Instagram because I was using it too much. Mm. But before that, I set like a half hour timer every okay. day. So I can only do that. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the likes thing, I the pictures that I post are strictly for artistic expression. They're never really of me. Mm -hmm. So I don't really cling to that as much. But I do use stories, um, Instagram stories, to express myself and express my writing and that's been a much healthier thing for me to do because people can comment and send me a DM and we can start a conversation. Yeah, definitely. Kind of using it as an avenue for other forms of art or like connection, but not necessarily the end point. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Any other points about Instagram? Um, no, I, I can't wait to see where it takes us next. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for coming out, Amanda. Thank you for having me, Clayton. You're the best. And you're the best. <laughs> this is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I know that time has numbered my days and I'll go along with everything you say. But I'll write home 
laughing, look at me now The walls of my town, they come crumbling Nick Bova, and my favorite piece of media that I brought to the table today is the album Babel by Mumford & Sons that they released in 2012. I first discovered the album when a uh, good friend Clayton and also podcast host. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was back in eighth grade. Um, no, is I think it was freshman year of high school. It was like fall, fall season. Um, mm-hmm. He texted me Opened up my flip phone, he said, check out these two songs, I Will Wait and Ghosts That We Knew by Mufford and Song. Sons, two songs on the album, and uh, instantly fell in love with them. Before then, I had never really listened to much music. Uh, my music listening was as far as listening to classic rock in my dad's truck, or listening to old 2000s hits like mm. Katy Perry and stuff with my mom in her car. <laughs> but um, listening to Babel, like... Definitely, it just swung open the doors into how I now listen to music. Um, back when uh, I listened to those two songs for the first time, um, that was on my family's old desktop PC that we all shared. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not too long after that, I got my own laptop. And like immediately, like as soon as I got my laptop, I opened up Spotify, make a playlist with Babel songs. Those two songs were like <laughs> immediately on there. And like just pretty much swung open the door into like alternative music for me i'd say how i listen to music now is like it pretty much defines my mood a lot of times (laughs) um i have songs for like how i'm feeling or like different seasons of the year or like just music really defines like who i am now any favorite uh artists that came after mumford and sons that kind of they were the next step it's hard to think back on like who immediately came after my friend's sons but i think black keys is a big one that happened pretty soon after um you know it's just like finding that common ground with clayton like we both like this type of music like it was cool because we had like another thing to talk about you know our friend max like he also liked the same music Mm -hmm. as us and like we could always like if we found a new new artist um robert delong is a big one that comes up um we could share like these songs between each other and Mm -hmm. like you know, when we hang out, we listen to music together, and that's just, like, defined our friendship throughout, like, a lot of early high school and even into now. Like, we still share music every time we hang out and find time when we come home. Mm-hmm. Like, And it was always good music we were recommending to each other, but it was also an extension of our friendships, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. hard to remove that um, nostalgia and sentiment from Definitely. these classic, classic early yeah. 2010s albums. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely, like... Sometimes when I listen to songs, like, I assign moments to songs. Um, this past summer, actually, I listened to a few Mumford & Sons songs, and, like, just listening to Babel again, a few of the songs maybe, like, tear up this this past summer, because it was, like, it reminded me of early high school, and, like, mm-hmm. when, like, we'd just, like, hang out and do sleepovers, and yeah. it was, a you know, a lot of good memories attached to those songs, um, and the same is true for, like, all the other songs that we shared. The reason why Babel is so important is just, it just swung open that door, and, uh, definitely built these relationships that uh have been just absolutely amazing joker and the thief in the night brings me back to outside summer on max's trampoline do you feel that i feel that very yes yes um joker and the thief in the night i also i also heard that one previously in a video game too it brings me back to that game that i used to play and also um like he's because max is a huge fan of that song yeah we just listened to that like outside either like at his bonfires or Mm -hmm. jumping on the trampoline 
definitely yeah and i guess like another artist artist that was very strong for our friendship at least was uh robert delong when yes. we saw him multiple times and met him i think on one or two occasions we met him actually mm-hmm. i don't know it's, it's just really cool that like our friendship was very based off of like you know we met through school and stuff but mm-hmm. like built on it from like a lot of music kept that strong ever since yeah mumford and sons was an avenue into music but also a starting path to our friendship yeah yeah that's why it's so special to me is like mm-hmm. it's defined a couple parts of my life definitely yeah for sure i think that's definitely a common thread is the media we <laughs> end up loving when looking back on it as the ones that tied us to the people we were consuming it with yeah you know? definitely yeah so thanks bova for coming on thank you Should for i call you nick <laughs> nah, keep it bova <laughs> thank you bova thank you I'm Brendan Farrelly. I'm an artist. Uh, you can find my stuff on Instagram at Daily Obstruction. And my favorite piece of media, well, it took me a long time to decide <laughs> on what to talk about. And I went back and forth. And um, it's not necessarily my favorite piece of media, but it's something that set me down a path that is really meaningful to me. And that is the anime Mirai Nikki that came out in 2011. I saw some clip of it on YouTube in some, like, meme compilation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, what's this? I'll check it out. And at the time, the story, like, really gripped me emotionally. And I'm sure if I went back and watched it now, it would be complete mm-hmm. dog shit of a show. <laughs> but at the time, I I fell in love with it. And I had watched anime previously to that, but that was the show that made me want to search out other shows and anime has just like i i'll step away from it every now and then like maybe some seasons there's nothing airing that i really care about but i'll always come back to it and find something like it's it's an old friend Mm -hmm. that i can always visit and find new things to talk about with and it's changed how i look at media as a whole definitely like my taste in movies and music has been drastically affected by anime uh for example uh cowboy bebop got me into jazz music Mm -hmm. samurai shampoo got me into hip-hop jojo's bizarre adventure got me more into prog rock and all of those genres led into other genres of music Mm -hmm. and i owe a lot to that one terrible show (laughs) that i saw in high school Tell us a little bit more about that quote-unquote terrible show. <laughs> so basically from what I remember, I think it was kind of like a, a Hunger Games-esque situation where there were 13 people that were like fighting to become like the next god of the world or whatever, mm-hmm. and they all had cell phones or something. <laughs> I guess Highlander would be more of a an apt uh, 
what's the word? Comparison. An apt comparison. Yeah. Than Hunger Games. I think they would kill each other one by one to become, like, gain their powers or something. I don't know. Some guy could, like, mind control dogs to attack people. <laughs> yeah. And that had nothing to do with, like, the powers that they were given from the cell phones. He That was just a thing he could do. Mm-hmm. I think there might have been a killer baby at one point. <laughs> Beyond terrible. <laughs> Beyond terrible. But at the time, I was like, damn, this is so deep. Those yeah. robot dogs. <laughs> I can relate to that. That baby. <laughs> I was a baby once as well. Fuck. Wow. Deep. Uh, what was your favorite thing that this kind of got you into? Well, another anime that came out either the same year or the year after in 2012, uh, Steins Gate, yes. is an anime all about time travel mm-hmm. and whether or not it's okay or we should change you know the past mm-hmm. and that is like an all-time favorite of mine and you know i could have talked about that yeah for this but i think marai niki is more of like a, a pivotal moment because without that marai niki there's no Steinsgate, and yeah. there's no there's no liking jazz music there's no i mean i haven't even talked about how Anime has been, like, a way of, like, bonding with people. Mm-hmm. Like, I would recommend anime to people that, you know, I've gotten people into anime mm-hmm. and strengthened friendships by talking about anime and watching it together. And it's, you know, anime gets such a bad rap, and I think rightly so <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, as just being, like, a this cringy thing that people like. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that anime isn't like a genre. It is an entire medium. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different animes for different age groups and different tastes. And it is an entire industry in Japan, like a a global powerhouse. And I think it's because in America, cartoons are seen as like something more geared towards kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I, I definitely felt the same way when I was younger before I knew like (laughs) how crazy and amazing anime could be but it's all thanks to some dumb show (laughs) got me into one of my favorite things I think we all have those right where it's like this is kind of your introduction into a new medium a new genre and then you realize 50 films in it's like oh that one wasn't great but without that I wouldn't have made it to where we are today Cool. Thanks for coming on, Brennan. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Fantasize about this back in Chicago. Mercy, mercy me, that mercy will I go. That's me, the first year that I blow. How you say broke in Spanish, me no I blow. Me drown so uh, Hi, my name is Jonas Schnowski. I'm a fourth year here at RIT. I've been friends with Clayton for the past like two years, I would say. When did we start oh, playing Dungeons and Dragons? More than that. That was freshman year, right? Oh, so about three years. That's crazy. Yeah, so we met playing Dungeons and Dragons with ted as the dm and here we are <laughs> what is your piece of media from the 2010s all right so i'm talking about my beautiful dark twisted fantasy by kanye west 
from 2010 at the very start of the decade. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about how you happened to find this album. Uh, I found this album, like, I didn't listen to it all the way through until last year, actually, because I hadn't listened to any of Kanye's music up until last year, and I just kind of decided one day that I was like, oh, he's a pretty respected artist. I should delve into the discography of his work, and I started at the beginning with College Dropout, and I worked Mm -hmm. my way up to My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great, and... Yeah, that's basically it. Tell us a little bit about the plot of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, kind of the themes and stuff. The the theme to My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is is so simple and so elegant. I just appreciate it. It's basically just a character portrait of Kanye. Yeah. Is he's relinquishing any sort of relatability he had up until this point and he's sort of stepping into he's like I'm a superstar now. Like that's how I kind of view it as mm-hmm. like Because up until this point, he was kind of more of a, like, oh, I wear polos and backpacks, and I'm kind of this guy that you can relate to. But now he's kind of just like, I am uniquely me. These are my thoughts. This is what I, like, this is what I think about. This is, like, the kind of issues that I deal with. Mm -hmm. And, like, he kind of just develops his, like... This, his cult of personality starts here. Yeah, definitely. Like, this is this is the beginning of Kanye as like the superstar celebrity that he is today. It's just it's just crazy, and I, I think it's also fair to say that Kanye before this album was as canceled as he could be in the pre-social yeah. media era. Mm-hmm. Like he was pretty much done. He, um, the woman he was engaged to broke yeah. up with him as well, mm-hmm. and also well, this was like pre-808s and heartbreaks but like he was also dealing like with his mom passing away and things like yeah. that and like i feel like kanye just overall was having a bad time mm-hmm. like he was he was as canceled as you could be in 2009 like that was insane and this was like his his step back in is just like um like if this fails i'm done mm-hmm. but if it succeeds i basically get to step into superstardom which is what happened yeah so i think it's i think it's really neat it's hard to talk about my beautiful dark twisted fantasy without talking about kanye because it is such a cult of personality Mm -hmm. it's only you could you could talk about this album without talking about the music for hours honestly (laughs) it's it's just there's so much content you can't talk about kanye's music without talking about kanye Mm -hmm. it's it's next to impossible where yes what i think with other superstars of the past like before social media was a big deal I was kind of thinking of like David Bowie like yeah he has a cult of personality but never as big or as massive like anything Kanye touches is sellable mm-hmm. and just it is it's mind-boggling to me I think it's crazy definitely it's totally I mean it's revealed just by the title of the album but it's yes. a window into his mind yeah it's super cool. I like how it's broken up into the three parts. Obviously, beautiful, dark, and twisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, in my personal opinion, the opening, the beautiful section, is the best section. Mm-hmm. I really like all the songs. I like the opener, dark fantasy, super lush, super interesting. Lots of like layered sounds, instrumentals, vocals, really cool. It's there's so much going on. It's so every song is so big. Like it's it sounds so big, so grandiose. It's in your face. It's all over the place. Gorgeous has it kind of gorgeous. Kind of feels like a rock song a little bit. Yeah, it's got that riff. Mm-hmm. It's got that riff, and it's got Kid Cudi singing over the riff. And that I I I love that song. That's probably one of my favorite tracks. It's really enjoyable. Uh, power, 
Power is a song. We could talk. We could we could replace this entire discussion about the whole album and just talk about power. Honestly, that was yeah. a very iconic song. Do you subscribe to the theory that he dies at the end of that song, and then the rest of this is like his descent into this dark, twisted fantasy, this hell or heaven? I had never heard that, but I can totally believe it because yeah. the theme of suicide is very prevalent in that song. Mm-hmm. It, and even at some point, uh, what is it? He's saying. And he's like, he's jumping out of the window. Mm-hmm. And I could totally see that. That's actually really cool. I can imagine that. But it's hard. All of the Lights is is such a such a banger, though. It is true. It's such a banger. All of the Lights is like a movie cast mm-hmm. of just stars on it, too. Mm-hmm. I was just looking through the credits, and I didn't know that Fergie was credited as a writer, either. Like, I just didn't know oh. that until now. I didn't know that, either. I just saw Stacey Ferguson, and I'm like, oh, that's Fergie. Why, <laughs> what, what did she write? I want to know what lyrics she wrote for this song. But All of the Lights is, is super lush and beautiful and just super in-your-face. I feel like it's him doing kind of a reaching lights from graduation but just bigger faster and stronger it sounds yeah. kind of similar it's i i like that a lot it was mm-hmm. very enjoyable to me and then after all of the lights we get into into the dark which is just amazing monster so good Nicki minaj dropping w- what may be the best verse of her entire career mm-hmm. i know that might, is that a hot take i don't think so kanye <laughs> has said like he thought about cutting it because he knew it was the best verse on the album and that pissed him off. Which I'm like, he's so right. He's so, so arrogant. I know. He would definitely consider cutting that out because mm-hmm. it's so enjoyable. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most fire verses. And she just totally falls into the groove of like, you know, this is an album of, of arrogance and, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of showing yourself off. She's like, 50K for a verse? No album out. <laughs> I don't need an album to sell my verses for $50,000. Yeah. It's such a, that's a, it's such a power move. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not surprised that he, he thought <laughs> that that was too much because it was so good. Overall, if you were going to talk about things about this album, yeah, I, I don't think it's perfect. No. But I think the fact that it's not perfect is what makes it so uniquely Kanye. Because Kanye is definitely not a perfect guy. It's, I don't think he. I think even he would claim to say that he's not perfect. I think he would say he's a god, but I don't think he would say he's a perfect god. Definitely not. He's not one of those people. Uh, Devil in a New Dress, probably like one of my other favorite tracks. Devil in a New Dress is a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that one? I feel like so many songs of this on this album, even when he's boasting are like deeply heartbreaking when you like really look into it and especially like as you've talked about you can't separate kanye from this album no so the more you know about him the more those emotions land he's deeply woven into the art itself it's it's hard to enjoy any piece of kanye without enjoying something of his personality Mm -hmm. i find that kanye is one of those very polarizing figures Mm -hmm. who it's very hard to find someone who feels like they're on the fence you mm-hmm. know they either they, I've, some people enjoy his music but don't like his personality which yeah. i think that's fine mm-hmm. some people like his personality but don't like his music those people are probably a lot rarer yeah <laughs> but um yeah i feel like if you like his personality you have to like his music mm-hmm. there's no way that you can get away with because because his personality is just deeply woven into everything he does it's that cult of personality I think he's kind of like the OG influencer, mm-hmm. like kind of step. Anything that man touches is marketable. It's he's kind of kicked off that whole like 
if you you have a cult of personality and everything that you do or say is becomes a product mm-hmm. Kanye can move units he, he can put some basic design on some clothes that probably took next to no effort and <laughs> sell millions of dollars worth of merch so mm-hmm. that I can respect it you know definitely but um Devil New Dress is a beautiful song I like the sampling on the song i like that uh vocal harmony that keeps passing through it's really enjoyable to me rick ross coming on it was a little bit of a it's a little bit jarring yeah <laughs> but like i don't know everything that's jarring about it just seems to give it more character because it seems like kanye was like okay this is a beautiful song this is like a just really nice chill harmony it's a little bit sad uh let's just throw rick ross on it because i want him on it mm-hmm. like i just want to hear his his sultry, scratchy voice. It's like, okay, okay, interesting. I feel that way about the Pusha T verse on Runaway. I'm like, I could live without this, but also it feeds into the narrative that Kanye was trying to I really like Runaway. Runaway is the next track. I really think Runaway is one of the other strongest songs on the album. I think it's really fun. And... I'm surprised that I think that way because I think it's 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 about eight and a half minutes. It's, it's a long. long track. Some nowadays when songs are so short, especially pop songs, I feel like a lot of people would have a hard time getting through it. Especially because oh, how long does it take you to even get to vocals? Maybe like a minute and a half, maybe longer. I'm it's not sure. It's like thirty seconds before you get more than one note. You know, more than a few notes on the piano. Yeah, and that song just builds and builds on itself. I love that slow build of like the little piano playing, that minor, the minor chords, and then just him just jumping into like emotional pain. I feel like he needs all eight minutes to get everything off of his chest that he wants to get off of in that song. Yeah, like it, it's it actually feels like everything he's saying is unique. Like it, there's there's even though the notes repeat often, the, what he's saying never repeats. Mm-hmm. Besides the chorus, obviously, but like there's a lot of emotional heartbreak in that song. I feel like in that song he's most likely talking about you know the loss of his uh, his significant other. Yeah. I don't really know too much of the scenario on why she decided to leave him, but... I think he's has said in interviews, like, it's the beginning of Runaway, basically. Like, he sent dick pics to some other woman. Oh, my God. Yeah. See, it's hard to tell when... <laughs> it's hard to tell if what he's saying is hyperbole or not true, or if it's just, like, a fact of his life. Like, when I listen to that part of the song, he's like, I sent this bitch a picture of my dick. It's just like, I was like, okay, I could picture you doing that but maybe you didn't actually do it but yeah maybe he just did do it like you don't know where the character of kanye becomes he kanye. is the character yeah he's him and the character that he's portraying are just meshed they came together on this thing mm-hmm. and now they've never separated Mm-mm. uh <laughs> runaway is a fun song hell of a life is a, is a wacky one i oh, think i like that one a lot I, actually. I like it a lot it's the the riff is so jarring <laughs> it's really jarring it it feels like um guitar based right that's a guitar i think so i'm not as good with instruments as i am with like paying attention to lyrics it definitely sounds like a guitar if it isn't a guitar it <laughs> sounds like a rock riff kind of like gorgeous but it's more it it attacks you Whereas I'd say gorgeous is kind of it kind of drives the song. It's kind of a beautiful lick, but mm-hmm. like a hell of a life attacks your attacks your ears. And it that does. that song is kind of an attack. It's just like I'm gonna live my life. I don't really care about what anyone says. I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna marry a porn star in a bathroom. 
I am me. I'm twisted. Mm-hmm. You can't change the, my twisted thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's that song, I think, is enjoyable for that reason. Even though it's not personally one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still, even if it's flawed to me, it adds to the character. It's making this picture. Mm-hmm. It's setting up the scene. This is me. Mm-hmm. You can't change me. Uh, Blame Game, I think, is kind of underrated. Because it's, it's back again. It kind of rehashes the ideas of Runaway like kind of broken relationship and uh it's it's unique to him because i I have talked to a lot of people where i like i'll share this song with them and they're like oh i've these are like kind of broken relationships that i've witnessed in real life and then they hear like certain things that kanye says and they're just like oh this instantly became far less relatable and i'm like yeah "Yeah, it's it's definitely unique to him Mm -hmm. even though a lot of these things are things that might happen to normal people like us i feel like when i'm talking about kanye i'm talking about like an alien an alien creature like he's not a normal human being Mm -hmm. he definitely doesn't portray himself as one like the the problems things that go on in this song are definitely unique to him and they're very personal and the john legend feature is very tasteful in my opinion it's good yeah it's good i feel like every feature in this album is unique and and fun even if they kind of clash with the song itself like they're there for a reason and they're employed with an idea Mm -hmm. which is cool to me i like it when music is planned out in such a methodical way Mm -hmm. even though some of this may not seem methodical i i feel like it definitely has to be to some extent because this like i said was his way of getting uncancelled this Mm -hmm. is like they said in gorgeous is like if you mess this up it's over yeah if you mess this up if this album was a one was anything maybe like a five out of ten or lower i don't think we'd be hearing that much about kanye anymore yeah the album had to be i mean it has flaws but it had to be amazing at least not to the superstardom level he is today Mm -hmm. i think a lot of the music that he's come out after this has been really good too Mm -hmm. but um i don't think he'd be as big of a superstar without this being a massive hit a massive success lost in the world what a good song that might be my favorite on the album i just want to gush over that song a little (laughs) bit is boney is how you say that right yeah that's just such an interesting guy to pick out of um like the group of like who you want to work with like mm-hmm. i, I want to know what uh kanye's thought process was when he was thinking of people to work with mm-hmm. like he's like why why boney vera because boney vera is one of those people that i never enjoyed his solo work particularly ever like the mm-hmm. whole super tuned super harmonized like kind of all is it kind of like alternative pop yeah it's like sad alternative it's pop like almost. sad it's sad boy alternative pop full pop I, it's he 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 has his niche <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't want to put him into too many boxes that he's not in but like that never speaks to me like i kind of like this the sound of someone's normal voice without mm-hmm. any sort of alterations but like it works so well in the context of this song mm-hmm. and it's really good <laughs> that's really all i can say it's it's just good you should listen to it if you haven't mm-hmm. it's a fun song and if you're in college you'll probably relate to it because a lot of us feel like we're lost in the world sometimes mm-hmm. and I, th- I think lost in the world is probably one of the most relatable songs if not the most relatable song on the album because yeah i think a lot of people especially now in this generation in this decade feel like they're kind of aimless kind mm-hmm. of without goals they need something to do 
And uh, that song definitely speaks to that. And it's super lush and beautiful. The, the instrumentation and just backing of that song is really nice to listen to. Yeah. It's super beautiful. And just, it sounds, it sounds like it could have come out maybe yesterday. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's definitely going to be something that listen, people listen to a, for a long time. It's one of those things where it, it's, it's going to be a classic. People are going to listen to that song for a long time, and it's going to sound fresh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the end skit, Who Will Survive in America is what I was getting to. That's just basically the end skit. It's, yeah. it's kind of a continuation of Lost in the World. Mm-hmm. But like, it's definitely something that tries to be profound, mm-hmm. but maybe doesn't achieve exactly what it wanted to. Maybe Kanye knows that, though. I because he, he knows. He produces this epic album that ends with a song as encompassing as lost in the world and then thus who will survive in america and it ends with like two people applauding you know what i mean it's very anticlimactic i think that's the word i was looking for Mm -hmm. for such a beautiful start like for such a massive grandiose start the end of it is very toned down in comparison even though every song is big and i know it's hard to imagine that like it's kind of hard to imagine a song as being big mm-hmm. but if you've never listened to this record you just have to you have to take my word for it like every song is just big in your face grandiose kanye if you will mm-hmm. if you could be used as an adjective yeah and um who will survive in america is is not that big gil scott heron is talking about who will survive in america and it's all through interesting poetry and that's kind of gratuitous in a way it's a little bit um like there's a lot of sexual imagery in that like Mm -hmm. whole spoken word portion and it's just it further just makes it kanye because there's a lot of he he loves his sexual imagery he uses it a lot in this record and just it's it's um it's a puzzling end it's a kanye end yeah i don't know what else to say about it but like yeah working through track by track that's how i feel about this record Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's mostly just a statement like it's it's kanye coming forward and saying i'm done being relatable i'm done being a normal a normal artist i'm gonna be this otherworldly figure who Mm -hmm. speaks his mind and has all of his cards on the table and has this massive cult of personality where everything i do is marketable Mm -hmm. and he's just kind of stepping into this new role and he's kind of kicking off like the whole social media influencer trends Mm -hmm. of like we have a cult of personality we can sell anything to anyone all of our instagram followers we wear a shirt people buy the shirt things like that and he does it in a super cool way in my personal opinion mm-hmm. it's 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 lush it's big i've said that a lot but <laughs> it's true it's massive if you have no interest in kanye you will not enjoy this record to its full like if you don't care about his life it, in any capacity it just won't it, a lot of these songs probably won't do it for you i think beautiful though will i think the beautiful section you can enjoy without enjoying oh yeah it's probably. so good like you can enjoy without caring about his life but i think as you go deeper into the record like as you get closer and closer to the end you need to be somewhat willing to invest a little piece of you into wanting to understand what he's going through and like what his issues are what he wants to talk about understanding all of that stuff makes enjoying this so much more fun 
definitely it's art inseparable from the artist in my opinion yeah and i think i think kanye is close to the first person to make his music completely inseparable from him yeah i I, and i think the only way you can do that is through like the rise of social media which Mm -hmm. was really important this decade and Mm -hmm. probably had a lot of impact on a lot of different people because there's a lot of like great musicians that you can enjoy and be completely separated from what they are about. Like the example I used earlier, David Bowie, you can absolutely love his music and not give a damn about him and what he was about. You mm-hmm. can love Queen and not give a damn about Freddie Mercury. You can just like arena rock. You like, you like chanting in sports games and you love Queen. That's yeah. basically <laughs> it. Like there's so many, so many superstar people that, don't have their personality uniquely woven into their music the way Kanye does. I think he was really the first to kind of do it to such an extreme level. Mm-hmm. And that took a lot of other different things. Like like I said, social media, very mm-hmm. important. Definitely. <laughs> the rise of the internet. <laughs> As they say. Thank you so much for being on, Jonah. It's already over? It's already over. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. We are the Crystal Gems. We'll always save the day And if you think we can We'll always find a way That's why the people of this world Believe in Garnet Amethyst And Pearl And Stephen! Hello, uh, my name is Rachel Mickle. I'm a fourth year electrical engineering tech major at RIT Happy to be here <laughs> <laughs> What is your piece of media, Rachel? Uh, so I'm talking about Steven Universe, uh, the TV show that aired on Cartoon Network starting in 2013. has five seasons, I want to say. And then a movie and something else coming out soon that I'm not fully up on. But <laughs> How'd you happen to find it? So 2013. So that would have come out when I was like early on in high school. And so I guess just like I don't remember like a big moment of just like discovering it, but mm-hmm. definitely like it, like it was like pretty big when it like started up so like me and my friends all kind of like tried it out at various points um and like i've like kept up on it more or less for the like the runtime of the five seasons and it really just like it did stuck with me i was like this was like the first thing that came to mind of like important media from the 2000s um for, for a number of reasons there's a couple like angles to it like it really just like resonated with me on a number of like in, in a number of ways mm-hmm. um i mean first off just like artistically it's just like really nice to look at you know what i mean like a lot of like animated shows just kind of like aren't like it was just like the point of them it doesn't have to be like a masterpiece but like they're Mm -hmm. like there's something about it to like the colors and all the art is just very just like nice and like refreshing to look at and then just like content wise just very like pleasant a lot of the themes are just very like based around like love and friendship and like supporting people in your community and it's Mm -hmm. just like a nice little like time away from (laughs) the real world character wise all of the like like all all the characters is like nice i enjoy them and one of the one of the big things i know like it's it's been pretty major in like um representation there it is yeah um in terms of like i know they had like like it was like a huge deal when it happened like they showed like a wedding between two female coded characters which was a huge deal and had them kiss on like a major like it's like a major network and that was like huge which is super cool and there was a character um like a a fairly major one i would say um named stevani who uses they them pronouns which is like like they don't like 
call attention to in a huge way of like this yeah. is the plot of the episode but it's mm-hmm. like it's like a thing that is referenced like explicitly which is is really neat and that's uh that character in particular resonated with me in a way of not of a lot of not a lot of other tv characters often do yeah um it's just you know like as like like i've heard this like, from a lot of other people as well as you're going through like formative time periods and like thinking about like gender and sexuality and whatnot and just like mm-hmm. having characters on tv that just kind of like like spark something it's mm-hmm. just a way to like further that conversation like with yourself and with other people yeah so it's just a lot of just like little things that just kind of like she's in there you know like yeah. <laughs> just hanging out in there yeah um as a member of the queer community it's like the first step is being shown in movies at all and then the second right. step is like it just being an aspect of a character's personality without it being, like you were saying, like, like the plot of yeah, the Yeah, like, he's gay. Look. <laughs> Look over there. Like, it's just, like, still just, like, natural, like, comfortably, mm-hmm. like, fit in there. It's, just, it's, it's very, very nice to see. And just knowing that, like, you know, like, the, like, the kids watching it, too. Like, they're, like, they're yeah. not even gonna, like, think about it. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's just, like, another part of their character. Mm-hmm. Like, that's great. That's awesome. Definitely, yeah. The fact that this is a show for all ages. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. It just and like that's a, like it's it's a kid show. You know what I mean? It just feel like kind of funny me being twenty two years old, jeez, <laughs> and just being like this children's show is one of my favorite pieces of media. But it was like as I was like going through like teenage years and stuff, it's just something like nice to come back to. And like mm-hmm. there are some more like heavier themes as the show gets on, but it's still very much like tailored towards like a younger audience. And mm-hmm. it's just like not not as complicated as like a lot of things that we have to deal with going through life, which so is a nice little, nice little bubble. Yeah. It's like wholesome escapism that yes. still is good for like the real culture. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to have to pick it up. Yeah. I have yeah. a door decoration, I think, on my front door for someone else that's really into Steven Universe. Ah, so. Plus, love that. Yeah. <laughs> Spreading the good word. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Rachel. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Hello, Ryan here to introduce the next guest, Lucas Coddett, who is the co-host of my podcast and radio show, You Have to Hear This, where we recommend and discuss albums the other person hasn't listened to. If you want to check us out, you can listen live at 9 p.m. on WCBF Fredonia Radio, or check us out wherever you can listen to podcasts. So the next topic we're going to talk about is a little outside of music, but just what is our favorite media of the last 10 years? I figured since the decade's coming to a close that we could talk about this. Yeah. Um, I sprung this on him. He had no time to prepare. No. I never have time to prepare. <laughs> so this is like music, movies, TV shows, books, anything. Right. Uh, well... I think books is kind of out of the question. Books is out of the question for both of us. I'm not saying you have to pick one for every uh, one of those. I'm saying just like one thing that's like this had the biggest impact on me in the 2010s. Movie of the decade. Can I guess your album? Sure. Twin Fantasy. All right. 
So let, let me explain myself here because I was thinking about this. Yeah. And Twin, Twin Fantasy, right? It's an album that was remade and re-released. And I think what that represents is a home small creator finally making it big. Yeah. And I think representing that growth is important because, like, the digital... Anyone can be an artist now. Digital media and music has helped small artists grow, and I think that album exemplifies that the most. Yeah, probably in the best way, too. Like, right. it bookends the decade, 2011 and then 2018. Right. Like, this is this man's life, pretty right. much. At least his adult life. I could go on forever about that album. <laughs> <laughs> we can if you want. No. I we, tried... did, we played a song from it last week. We did. I yeah. forgot about that. And we can't play that song again. <laughs> I mean, we could. Bodies? I don't know. I, I do have a few extra songs lined up. Favorite track off Twin Fantasy? Uh, Famous Prophets. Ooh, I think we talked about this before. We might have. That's a great song. It's 16 minutes. We won't play it. No. Um, but it's worth the list. Beach Life is Mine. I don't know if that's the everyone's answer, but I just it's such a perfect song. Yeah. I don't know. I I like it. What's what's your album of the decade? Oh god. Um I often say uh to Pimp a Butterfly. <laughs> yeah. I I love that it's album. It's just you s- I don't know. Something what? about like you M- saying that. <laughs> Me saying to Pimp a Butterfly? I don't know. Is to pimp is pimp a swear? Can we say pimp? no? Okay, no, it doesn't. Um, but that or teens of denial slash twin fantasy. Yeah, it's it's really hard to pick between those three. Let alone teens of denial versus twin fantasy. I think teens of denial had the biggest impact on me as an adult or as a up and coming adult. Right, <laughs> but uh, twin fantasy helped me through a really tough time in my life. Me too. My favorite movie of the decade, and it came out right at the beginning of the decade, is uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. That came out this decade? It was 2010, yeah. Because <laughs> I was looking, I was asked this question by my brother, and uh, he, he has a podcast called Terry Talks Podcast. I'm in there with him. I'll plug that. And I'll also plug You Have to Watch This and Stories We're Sharing podcast my brother also has. But he... He wanted to do this lengthy discussion on our podcast, and right. I want to talk about either Scott Pilgrim versus the World or Teens of Denial. I ended up on Teens of Denial, but I want to say Scott Pilgrim is a perfect movie. If you haven't seen it, don't know any, don't read anything about it before watching it. It is such a delight. I liked it too. I don't really think I don't like criticize movies like I do with music. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm. I got into movies and music in parallel. Yeah. So, like, at the same time, roughly. There's just, there's a lot of classic movies that I haven't seen. <laughs> Do you have a favorite movie of the decade? Or TV show or what have you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> when did Breaking Bad stop airing? I've never finished Breaking Bad, but this is a worthy question. Hmm. Uh, I, that, that was this decade. I think so, too. I want to hear you talk about Twin Fantasy more. <laughs> I want to get this out of you. We might talk about this in the future, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just, I really liked the storytelling of it and how, like, 
Will Toledo, who is car seat headrest, he kind of was like the main di- he he stated that the main difference between the 2011 version and the 2018 version was that now in 2018 he sees the story as a happy story as to in 2011 where he saw it as a sad story it's funny because it's still a very depressing <laughs> the first okay the first like six seven tracks are a lot of fun yeah the last three are devastating right it's it has a lot of emotional highs and lows which I like. Mm-hmm. It really speaks to being young and stupid and in love. Right. It's a it's a good lovey album. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's I just, cute. I liked it. It it's, is cute. Yeah. So, have you thought of a movie? Well, the big problem is I feel like a lot of the big movies of this decade were all reboots. <laughs> yeah, that's why I look for indie stuff. <sighs> like when I think of my favorite movies... Blade Runner 2049, Call Me By Your Name. Those came out the same year, but, you know, La La Land, um, Moonlight Destroyed Me. I liked The Lobster. Was that Oh, really? that's a great movie. That was this decade, yeah. We can't really talk about the plot. No. Do you want to just give them, like, the idea? It's it's just a movie you have to go and watch. The okay. plot is really complicated. Don't say anything? It's hard to explain. Okay. Well, do you want me to try, or do you want to just leave it up? Let's leave it to the listeners. Okay. All right. Uh, oh, that's a great movie. Would it be weird to say Joker? I don't think so. I think it w- I, I, I need it to settle for me. I don't think it would be my pick, but I can see it being someone's pick. It's well, a really enjoyable movie. I just like it because, like... Or not enjoyable. <laughs> What's the word? Good. It was the first, like, movie for me that was, like... It was nice to see a fresh take on a comic book story. Yeah. Because, you know, with all the Marvel stuff and all the DC stuff... It was just nice to see something using the same assets, but, like, new. Yeah. It, it's, like, I hope they do more stuff with that. Right. With that being said, I hope they don't make, like, an R movie of, like, Calendar Man or something, you know? <laughs> Polka Dot Man. Polka Dot Man. The, the, that's the thing that I'm worried about is, like, whether or not studios think, oh, we need to make movies that are subversive and, like, we need to delve deep into these comics or we need to make movies that are good. I'm scared. Right. I'm scared about which lesson they will take from it. Like right. we need to make a sequel from the Joker, or we need to make a good, compelling movie. I really hope they don't make a sequel to the Joker. I hope not. I feel like it would. What would they do? You know. <laughs> right. I don't know. It was good to see a movie that wasn't blatantly a cash grab. It's refreshing. I don't. It is. I don't think the people making the movie were like, oh, we're going to make this to make money. Right. But I think the people, I think the studio got it and was like, oh, what what do we do now? <laughs> you know? It got, I went to the, uh, where it was being premiered, Toronto Film Festival. I was there. It was yeah. awesome. It was the same time as the Tyler concert. Uh, I'm sorry. He likes to brag about things he's gone through. I'm not bragging. <laughs> I. It's my life. <laughs> world is changing. Soon, there will only be the conquered and the conquerors. Step into the spotlight. You are a good man. Step into the spotlight. With a good heart. And it's hard for a good man to be a king. This is Mary Catherine, and 
For everyone listening right now, I want you to think about joy. Where can you find joy? Where can you make joy? Where can you spread joy? Do you have some to send to someone else? We need more joy in the world. So make some joy. So what is your piece of media from the 2010s? Wakanda forever. Yes. (laughs) We have watched from the mountains as, oh my God, I could quote the whole thing right now. As you have left your technological advancements to a child who scoffs in tradition. (laughs) I won't have it. I won't have it. No, I Mbaku, leader of the Jabari tribe. Oh my god, all day. I How many times day. have you seen Black Panther? So I actually saw it three times in the movie theater. Um, the first time I saw it, the person who got the tickets got them really late, and so we were in the first row. <laughs> and literally just craned next the whole time. And mm-hmm. so I was like, well, I'm going back to watch this two more times. And that is really, there are three movies within the last decade that I have seen more than once in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. And it's Black Panther, Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. and Girls Trip. Do we see a theme here? For the culture <laughs> people, for the culture, Black people in cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Black Panther was definitely one of them. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge impact on the world. Tell us about that impact and maybe the impact it felt on you. Yeah. So imagine, imagine a world where you grow up and none of the superheroes look like you, right? If I were to ask you, what is the most iconic superhero growing up? And answer this question, what is the most iconic superhero that you can think of growing up? Probably Spider-Man. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can talk about what Black Panther has actually done for black and brown children to finally have superheroes that look like them. Right. Mm -hmm. Because even using your example, when we talk about Spider-Man and Into the Spider Universe. Right. What are we Mm -hmm. talking about? We're talking about um, an Afro Latino boy. Right. Um, Miles comes from um, his mom is uh, a Latina. His dad is black. Right. And so we we finally have this version of Mm Spider-Man that isn't white. Right. And it's opening this door so that all of these children can finally see themselves in this immune person who can't die. Right. There, mm-hmm. There is no version of these superheroes that can die. And so to finally have representation of that is something that I'm not really sure how to describe, because really Black Panther has really opened that door to start. You're, you're starting to see all of these other pieces come out, right? Yeah. Because it was Black Panther. Um, and then it was Into the Spider-Verse. And then it was Raising Dion on Netflix, right? Um, have you seen Raising Dion yet? I haven't. Oh my gosh, you are missing something <laughs> so magical. Raising Dion is um, another comic book that was written by... Oh, I forget the author's name. Um, but Asian man who wrote this story about this little black boy um who has powers and it's an amazing comic book and they made this amazing fanfic to try to get it picked up as a movie a series anything Mm -hmm. this was years ago maybe five or six years ago and finally here's the connection to black panther michael b jordan picked it up as a producer, mm-hmm. and then he plays the dad in the series on Netflix. Um, apparently, a, there's been a lot of flack about raising Dion. People have had a hard time getting behind it, but regardless of whether or not you think it's good, the fact that it exists mm-hmm. is the important piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Black Panther 
it told so many different stories about being black that I I don't have enough time to go into, but <laughs> it told almost every version of being black. It told being black from, um, you know, Africa somewhere um, or the Caribbean or things like that. And it also told being black um, from America and, and not having a motherland mm-hmm. um, and the conflict between those two perspectives of knowing exactly where you came from and not belonging and having no idea where you came from and not belonging. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why Black Panther just blew my mind, blew my mind. So yeah. Yeah. And I'm learning more and more about it as time goes on. I learned that not a single person in that movie is not wearing natural hair. So all of the black characters in that movie None of their hair has been processed. Um, None of them are wearing um, anything that would not be natural. Sure, there's like extensions and and weaves like that for the aesthetics, but Mm -hmm. um, everyone's hair is natural. And thinking about, you know, even we can go back to Halle Berry playing Storm Mm -hmm. and how her hair was pressed and was straight and flared out like um, Farrah Fawcett and Charlie's Angels for (laughs) one iteration of those movies, which I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, This was really trying to capture um, being black in the most pure form. And that's why Black Panther is great. And it was able to open so many doors that we're just seeing now, right? Like so many the fact that this is the third highest grossing movie worldwide mm-hmm. of all time just mm-hmm. demolishes any mm-hmm. preconceived notion that Hollywood moguls may have. And that's why we're going to get like the series you're talking about and also Crazy like Shang-Chi on. in yep. a couple years and the Scarlett Johansson movie and just yep. a more diverse yeah. superhero lineup. There, there are so many different superhero lineups that are coming out and um, spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen Endgame, this is the time to turn this <laughs> off. Um, but even thinking about um, an Endgame and that scene where all of the women were lined up together mm-hmm. um, to to fight um, Thanos. And really just thinking about the contribution that all of those people from Wakanda had. It just, mm-hmm. it just mind, mind boggling. Even thinking about Tanahashi Coates and like, you know, how... Coates was really already growing, but, you know, I think Black Panther really catapulted him forward. And now, you know, his latest book got picked up by Oprah for the Oprah Book Club. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, really just talking about this movie has just changed the peripheral for so many black and brown children, you know, to talk about there, there are all these jokes online right now and black Twitter talking about, you know, let's rewrite what we're going to tell our children. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that they're talking about is all these different characters that are from black social media and pop culture and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking, there's a show called um, Living Single that had Queen Latifah on it and a group of black friends. And everyone's like, let's just call this friends. Like instead of this being Living Single, <laughs> mm-hmm. I could imagine that there is an iteration somewhere um, where let's call Black Panther Superman, right? Um, let's tell our children that this was Superman. Let's mm-hmm. not say that Clark Clint, this this is Superman mm-hmm. right here. Um, T'Challa is Superman. And so, you know, what does that mean for little black boys to be able to look up and see someone that is doing good for the culture that looks exactly like him, right? It reminds me of those pictures of Barack Obama being in the White House 
And that little boy wanted to come up and touch his hair because his hair was just like his hair. Mm -hmm. It's the same exact concept that representation matters. And we have to be able to show people that they are greater than what they think. Mm -hmm. I've never seen people take pictures of themselves in front of like a movie poster but i saw it every single time i went to the theater while black panther was out you like if you go on the amount the things that people people dressed up in like full dashiki so it's like traditional african wear like full dashikis tunics and like Mm -hmm. you know bringing in the 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 processional drums and you know walking around i still oh my god i still have a sign in the back after brandon went to go see it and he wrote mk wakanda forever like (laughs) literally it's still right there on my wall um that it is it is something that transforms just imagine growing up not seeing anyone that looked like you Mm -hmm. that that's 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 what Black Panther has shattered for all of us. We finally get to see someone that looks like us. Um, and that's, that is something that, you know, it had everything. It had humor. It had empathy. Um, it had righteousness. It had justice. It had conflict. It just, it had everything. And so it is one of the greatest things that I think definitely has happened in this last decade for sure. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much, MK, for yeah! coming on. Yeah, anytime. You know <laughs> where to find me. I do. Thanks. Yeah. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. When I was a boy, my father, Avatar Ang told me the story of how he and his friends heroically ended the Hundred Year War. Avatar Aang and Fire Lord Zuko transformed the Fire Nation colonies into the United Republic of Nations, a society so, uh, where my name is Katie Roy. Um, I am here to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender, but mostly The Legend of Korra, mm-hmm. because uh, technically Avatar was not from this decade, <laughs> finished in 2008. Core is 2012 to 2014, so that's nice. Um, I found Cora because I was a huge fan of Avatar growing up, and when I heard that there was this new like sequel series about it, I was like, yes, I want it. <laughs> I want it all the time, mm-hmm. every day. So um, I kind of just got straight into it, and there's a lot of mixed opinions about it, but I think it's an overall great show. It's um, got its flaws, just like every show. It can never be as good as Avatar, the original. Mm -hmm. But I still think that doesn't mean it can't be a good show. Um, But basically, Korra is the the sequel, or it's Avatar, the Legend of Korra, is the sequel to Avatar, the Last Airbender, where Mm -hmm. Aang has passed away. Korra is the new Avatar. She's Water Tribe. Um, Takes place when she's a little bit older than Aang. She's not... The 12, 13-ish age, she's about 17. And all of her friends are the new team avatar, are all about the same age. Um, And it kind of details her her journeys as an avatar. It's less about the overarching save the world, you know, and defeat the Fire Nation, and more about character growth, Um, which I think kind of applies to our... um, 
the fans as they were growing. So mm-hmm. as, you know, kids, they like to see themselves in things. They, mm-hmm. As a 12 or 13-year-old, would love to see um, a 12 or 13-year-old main character go through this overarching epic journey, right? Because mm-hmm. you always see the world as big and scary when you're like that age. Mm-hmm. But when you get to be a little bit older, you see that the world really isn't... It is big and scary, but the you yourself are like small and, and you need to grow to become the person that you need to be and that's mm-hmm. what core is all about and i find it fascinating that the way they they portrayed her as this um peppy young like i'm the avatar and you have to deal with it sort of thing <laughs> that is a quote from the show oh really yeah <laughs> um but then she graduates to um, it's kind of like that one Harry Potter meme where it's the first four books are like, fuck yeah, I'm Harry Potter. <laughs> and then the last are like, fuck, I'm Harry Potter. Yeah. So Cora kind of has the same mm-hmm. like, fuck yeah, I'm the Avatar. And then, oh fuck, I'm mm-hmm. the Avatar. So, but she's, she gets through it and you get to see like the darkness that we didn't see so much of. Mm-hmm. It was more subtle in the first series. And that's why I really like it and why I think it has relevance to the decade because we've kind of moved from our small childhood, everything is good, you know, and I'm just kind of, I need to grow into this good world, into the world really isn't what we think it is and it's our power to change the world. And that's what Cora does. She changes it for the better. She opens the spirit portals and humans and spirits can live together and she just changes the entirety of what our view of the world is mm-hmm. and it's incredible but it kind of like not that the original show wasn't nuanced but it kind of inserts even yeah. more nuance into yeah. this good versus evil mm-hmm. tale and i'm not blind to the flaws of the show mm-hmm. i know that there was one or two things about about it like um the giant robot at the end that was the <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't executed very well the, mm-hmm. the very last season but um there's good things too that that we wouldn't expect like the creators their fans getting older the fans are becoming more politically aware mm-hmm. and they want to see diversity representation that sort of thing in the show whereas there it's not that there wasn't that kind of diversity in in the first series Mm -hmm. but it's it's more overt i guess in the in the end of of cora in that um cora throughout the show she's date she dated mako and she dated um a couple others she i think bolin tried to kiss her she dates boys and then in the last season she discovers that she might be attracted to a Sami, mm-hmm. and the end of the last episode, the two of them like hold hands and walk into the spirit world together, and it's like it's so cute, and it's mm-hmm. like it's it's overt, but not to a child. So mm-hmm. if you're if you don't know, I mean, hopefully nowadays parents are not teaching their kids like bad things about gay people, but yeah. they're hopefully nowadays. You know, but if you're a kid, you might not realize. You might be like, "Oh, they're they're just friends." But as a, a 17 year old or something that you mm-hmm. know that that stuff is part of the world, you see, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, they're together, and it's adorable, and I'm so excited about it." Like they they inserted that kind of stuff mm-hmm. into the show, and they also did it right from the beginning, and that they made the main character instead of a little white boy, they made a, the main character a woman of color mm-hmm. and a very 
strong personality woman of color. Mm -hmm. I'm the avatar and you have to deal with it sort of thing. And I just love that they they took those political um, things and, and put it into a kid's show or a teen's show for us to digest and, and understand and grow up with these kinds of representations. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I had my friend Rachel, she talked about Steven Universe, mm. and it was a similar thing of like, it's just representation for representation's sake. Yeah. Like, a character uses they, them pronouns, yeah. and they don't like make a point of it like, hey, look at them. It's just like, these are our characters, these are like people in the real world, and yeah. they have a diverse subset. And I think the 2010s is the first time we saw that where it was like, this is just a part of the character. It's not the whole character. Yeah. And it's incredible, too, because both of the two girls, like, you hear all that stuff about, like, bi erasure or whatever. Like, if you're, if mm-hmm. you're dating a man if you, and you're a woman, then you're straight. Or if you're dating a woman and you're a woman, then you're a lesbian. And there's mm-hmm. no such thing as bi people. You can't just choose. Like, you hear some of that around. Yeah. And But both Korra and Asami, who were together in the end of the show... Mm-hmm both dated men throughout. Mm-hmm. So it's very obvious that they're bi, and it's just, it's great to see the representation as a bi lady myself. Yeah. It's so nice. Mm. It's nice seeing yourself on TV shows you exactly. watch Grown Up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm. And they also did a really good job, of course, this is Avatar The Last Airbender at its core, but representing mm-hmm. disabled people. Um... And, you know, there's Toph, the, the mm-hmm. blind the blind earthbender, who is not at all portrayed as disabled. She's just different. Yeah. She's blind and she uses it to her advantage. Mm-hmm. And Toph appears in the next series as well. But I'm also talking about um, there's a point, and this is, I think, my, personally my favorite season of Korra, mm-hmm. where Korra, she's um, temporarily wheelchair-bound. For, like, a long time. Wow. Um, she goes through an ordeal at the end of the third season where somebody tried to kill her by um, poisoning her with mercury. Um, like, imagine mercury is a metal. Metal bender um, mm-hmm. would make uh, this mercury. They tried to, like, put it into her skin, and it would, like, trigger the avatar state because she's dying. Yeah. She couldn't leave the avatar state, and then he would straight murder her while she's in the avatar state to prevent any more avatars from happening. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's fucked. Mm-hmm. But that was this ordeal at the end of the, the third season that she went through, and then the, the fourth season starts off with she's traumatized. She's emotionally not ready or able to be the avatar and Mm -hmm. in addition to that she sees the world because she's wheelchair bound for three years there's a three-year gap between the third and fourth season Mm -hmm. so for three years she's just unable to fulfill her function as the avatar because Mm -hmm. the avatar is supposed to bend all four elements and she can't even stand up Mm -hmm. and so she is just depressed by um, the world moving on without her and people they show like in the beginning of the fourth season she'll she, when she gets the ability to walk around again she still can't fight very well but she, so she's kind of traveling with no name mm-hmm. she's kind of just existing going to around the earth kingdom and like participating in underground fighting arenas whatever she's trying <laughs> to try and force herself to get back in shape mm-hmm. but it's not working she comes across some guy and he's like wait aren't you the avatar and somebody else walks by and he's like, an avatar? We still have one of those? <laughs> it's like, Korra feels 
that the world has moved on without her and it, it's just herself. She's crushed. Mm-hmm. And that eventual Katara, Katara as the master healer of the entire world basically has to help rehabilitate her and you see Korra's journey from wheelchair to non, uh, to, to being able to walk at least. But even then she gets these hallucinations of herself while she was in that state that she was in with the ordeal and the mercury and all that. Yeah. She sees these visions of herself holding herself down and it's just terrifying. And the only way she gets through it eventually um, is that Toph, the metal bending master of the universe, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> whoa, um, helps her, Korra, bend the metal out of her own body because there was still some mercury left and that's why she was paralyzed, but mm-hmm. nobody knew. And... Um, but just that representation of this huge journey is like, it's not about the show itself. It's not about the saving the world aspect. It's more about the Korra saving Korra aspect. Yeah. And that's important to, I think, the older audiences to know that we don't have to um, save the world if only we save ourselves. Yeah. Right? So, but yeah, the, the dis- disability portion of it, too, is that they really expanded upon that, expanded it, mm-hmm. and it's like... Incredible. I love the show. <laughs> oh, gotta watch it. Yeah. Yeah. I I love Avatar, but I haven't watched like any of Legend of Korra, and now mm-hmm. I definitely gotta yeah. go back and watch it. Definitely so. do that. It's it's worth it. There like I said, there's flaws, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Katie. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Tim Mullen. Um, I'm a graduate student at Binghamton University, I'm currently working in their Q Center. What piece of media did you pick from the 2010s? <laughs> um, I am looking at Netflix streaming slash Netflix original programming. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can stream our media, media has made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just an intersection of my age with it, but you know, I went through a period in eighth grade where I have friends and maybe want to see them outside of school sometimes. And if you miss a show that week, you kind of just miss it. Mm-hmm. You can set up your VCR, but if your brother messes it up, like it's just gone. <laughs> so I think streaming has kind of made a huge deal. Binge culture has absolutely changed the way media is made. It's mm-hmm. made to be more bingeable now. And I think their original programming someone smarter than me can tell you more about their business model and how it makes them money, mm-hmm. but they're willing to take risks on things that no one else is taking risks on anymore. Can you talk about a little bit how you think that's kind of impacted the media we're getting? I remember when shows, they have the artificial recap last time on, yeah. and there's all that. And then sometimes even embedded into the show, there's like really clunky exposition for mm-hmm. people who didn't remember from that far ago. Interesting. That's gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think you get more story that way because you're mm-hmm. not wasting time on that stuff. It does feel like that's like the ultimate medium that we're hammering in on. It's like the limited series of like a streaming service because... I think like... so. Um, and it's... Part of it is like the risk-taking nature that we can just put out this thing that stands on its own. Mm-hmm. And if it does really well, you, we can get you a second season. Yeah. 
But if not, it stands well on its own, mm-hmm. for sure. And I feel like that ability to like kind of take risks is the reason that we're getting shows like Dear White People, and that's the first one that comes to mind, but just like more uh, diverse. I think it's been huge for a lot of minority communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think about Sense8, and a show like that, where would a show like that even shop in the 90s? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe some cable stations but really probably not even Mm -hmm. yeah and i I think that's been huge i think there's stories that we don't usually get to hear that we're starting to hear Mm -hmm. and sometimes in surprisingly mainstream vehicles um i think about jessica jones and how real the portrayal of abuse and um, recovering from trauma is Mm -hmm. in that and it's it's a very real form of storytelling for a show about people with superpowers. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a show like that has an immediate analog of like a cable, like Arrow or um, Supergirl, I think it's called. Right. And so you can kind of see how they're able to play with more in the Netflix original Marvel shows than like the CW shows. Right. Like even uh, Supergirl is, I'm, I'm watching that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's not a little bit political. Mm-hmm. They're very clear about where they stand, but usually in fairly vague terms. Yeah. Um, so this week we'll talk about, you know, quote unquote, immigrants and what <laughs> life might be like these for these people from a different planet. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of usually still pretty contained. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I, you know, again, Jessica Jones, that entire show is about that pretty specific experience. Mm-hmm. They can really dive in a lot deeper. Any f- other uh, favorite streaming originals from the last couple years? <laughs> so I really wanted to talk about Jessica Jones, and I did. I, I look at even Orange is the New Black. Yeah. The first season of that I thought was brilliant because it's this privileged, rich white girl who really feels like she doesn't belong mm-hmm. where she ends up, socially or otherwise. And the whole point of the first season is that she belongs there at least as much, if not more, than everyone else around her. Yeah. Um, Because they make it very clear that some of those people didn't do the thing they're in there for. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those people had circumstances working actively against them. And she did not. And she still did this thing. And she's like kind of whining about about it. Yeah. I think it became a very different show after that. I didn't finish the last season because I kind of stopped caring. Mm -hmm. But I I think there's social conversations that are happening now already so i think there's a context for it Mm -hmm. but i also think it's still moving the needle yeah it makes it a little bit harder to compare to that show might have happened in the 90s Mm -hmm. but it definitely would have been on cable somewhere you're not going to see that on a network yeah for sure i think that's a great example because that was one of the first like two because that in house of cards right i think so yeah yeah and then uh like we were talking about that has I don't know, maybe it'd be around in the 90s, but from growing up, I couldn't see it. And it, like a female-led prison show with like people right. of all different communities uh, being as talked about as it was. And and being shown as fully human. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I checked out Raising Dion. I, felt, I thought that was cool because it's, you know, again, it's probably, I can't speak to that experience, but it's probably meaningful for many, especially comic book nerds, Yeah, from an African-American experience. Um, I just thought it was cool because it's also interesting storytelling mm-hmm. um, so like Medea the play is the tragedy of Jason as told through the lens of Medea mm. and this is kind of like 
a superhero origin story as told through the lens of his mother. That was like kind of cool to watch. Oh, that's awesome. You're right. I was like, where have I heard that name? But you're the second person to bring that up because someone else talked about Black Panther and also talked about Raising Dion. So. Yeah. If you haven't checked it out, um, it's pretty cool. Okay, I'll add it to my list. It's a little bit slow to start, mm-hmm. but it's it's worth sticking around for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are the most important ones. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but I, I think that's kind of what's exciting is those are the ones I've been able to hear buzz about them and I've been able to, there's probably more that I just don't know yet. Yeah. And that's that's kind of cool too. Yeah, it's just like it's part of the reason that it feels like we're so overwhelmed with great content right now is there's right. so many streaming services. But awesome. Thank you so much for being on Tim. Anytime. Hello friend. Hello friend. That's lame. Maybe I should give you a name. But that's a slippery slope. You're only in my head. We have to remember that. Shit. It's actually happened. I'm talking to an imaginary person. What I'm about to tell you is top secret. A conspiracy bigger than all of us. There's a Hello, group of listeners. <laughs> um, my name is Dylan. Dylan Bish. That's my first and last. I'm a friend of Clayton's, Mr. Terry. And uh, my piece is Mr. Robot. Uh, it's a great show. It's a USA show. Mm-hmm. Written and directed by Sam Esmail. The, the legend mm-hmm. and um it came about in my life because it was recommended to me by a good friend of mine max and um i think he recommended to me after season one um so i watched seasons two three and four as they were coming out which was uh man i'm glad i got in because it was the suspense between episodes and especially the suspense between seasons it's like uh, it just made it so great to watch. It made me look forward to like every single Sunday. It was like, oh, what's gonna happen? Um, so that that's really been fun. Um, and now I'm pretty sad that it's over. Mm-hmm. But uh, ended with, oh, I'm not gonna say anything about the ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about the premise of the show, as much as you can do without spoilers for this first part. Okay. Uh, the premise of the show is uh, it follows. Um, a cybersecurity engineer named Elliot Alderson. And basically, um, the show starts as... Um, it just kind of follows his life as he's a, he's a cybersecurity uh, expert by day and kind of a vigilante hacker by night. Um, and he is a closeted genius, um, but he has a lot of psychological, mental struggles. And... Uh, so we follow kind of both aspects in the show of like him doing amazing, incredible, hacking, genius things, and also like his struggle as a person, his his internal struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's addicted to morphine and stuff like that. And, yeah, <laughs> it's really hard to not jump into spoilers, right? Uh, so you've said some controversial things in the sense of saying this show's better than Breaking Bad. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I never no. said it was objectively better than Breaking Bad. I just said it. I, it's my favorite show. Mm-hmm. Next no, to bad. no, but I'm just teasing. Is there any particular reason you think you put it so high up for your personal ranking? Okay, Breaking Bad is still an amazing show. It's mm-hmm. number it's number two on my list. Yeah, and they're tight. It's yeah, it's close. <laughs> I think Mr. Robot is shot slightly better. I think there are more um, twists and turns in the plot that make it even more engaging than Breaking Bad was. And I think the story is just so relatable for people who are like interested in tech and for a lot of uh, a lot of the millennials today <laughs> so um 
I don't know. It just made it really cool because I could bond more with the characters on like a personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's what does it for me. Yeah, I think this show, even when it hasn't worked for me, which is rare, it still is always like taking risks and doing things that you don't see on other TV shows. Yes. In ways that are so exciting from just like the filmmaking to where the plot goes, like mm-hmm. you're saying. I've never seen a show like it. Yeah. It's it's very unique in a very good way. Mm-hmm. So do you want to jump into spoilers and talk about all the twists and turns for a little bit? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Big twist of season one is that right. the Mr. Robot character is actually an alternate personality of mm-hmm. our protagonist. Yes. Did you see it coming? I don't think I did. I didn't either. Yeah. I did not. And even like as it's happening, even as it's like being revealed, you know, when you see him um, going back to his old house and then you see him go to um, the uh, tombstone, it's, it's kind of like confusing for a second. Um, and then you kind of get what's going on and it's like, it takes a second to like set in your brain. It's like, what mm-hmm. are we seeing right now on screen? But then, uh, you rewatch season one and it just makes like, it just makes it that much better to like rewatch it. Cause the first time you watch through, um, unless, unless you've had it spoiled for you, you pretty much have no idea. Yeah. Like from the, from the people I've talked to, like nobody really saw that coming. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the, uh, more spoilers season two mm-hmm. um the prison thing where we find out that elliot's been in prison for i think like the first six or seven episodes of season two something like that because the reveals happen around the same time in terms of the episode I think. yeah i think it's around season seven for both or episode seven rather mm-hmm. season three i guess the big one would be um price being angela's father yeah probably yeah season three i felt like and maybe this is part of the reason i liked it is it didn't feel like we're building up to a twist. It felt like we hit the ground running in terms of plot. Yes. It was, it was like an action show for yeah. season three. It was crazy. And uh, you talked about how like being able to watch it week by week, it was really valuable for a show like this. Yeah. I have so many great memories of us in Global Village, like oh my sitting gosh. down on yeah, Sundays right? to watch it. Yeah. Ugh. And it was so, it was like, I, I, I've said this a lot, like, as especially the season four episodes have been coming out. Every episode is very satisfying in its own right. Yeah. But at the same time, you feel like you have to watch the next one. And it's like, there's so much suspense, like, between each one. Mm-hmm. And having to wait a week is like, it's terrible, but in such a good way. <laughs> <laughs> season three probably has my favorite testament to the craft of the show um in the sense of the episode that was all one take oh yes and watching that live with you and maybe ted was in the room before uh they got into mr robot and we were like 10 minutes in and we were like guys i don't think there's been a cut yet right yeah (laughs) and then the slow realization of oh my god there's not going to be any commercial breaks yeah and it's all going to be a single shot and what (laughs) that was the first time they did that and they didn't advertise like no commercial breaks right? right yeah there, there, there was nothing. There was no heads up. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, boom, one shot. Here you go. So that season sees Mr. Robot and Elliot clashing a lot, but mm-hmm. it ends with kind of working together for this fourth season. So do you want to yep. talk about the fourth season a bit? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> I think they, they started off so well with kind of like a throwback to season one, episode one in season four episode one because there's a lot of parallels between um you know the opening scene is 
Elliot kind of taking down like a pedophile in yeah. each case, just like basically slamming them. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really cool because um, it was kind of like a return to the roots because we hadn't mm-hmm. seen that kind of in a while, like one on one Elliot taking down an individual, mm-hmm. and that was cool to see that again and still having it tie into the plot in a really meaningful way, mm-hmm. which was great. And then um, just escalated from there. <laughs> Season four was like, we're going to take all the bits and pieces that you've loved from the previous season and put them towards this plot that we built in season three. Yes. It had the, it had kind of the charm of season one and like the uh, internal psychological struggle of season two mm-hmm. and the action of season three. Yeah. It was like all in one season, just like boom, 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 one after the other, where like everything was so well encapsulated in each episode and it followed the plot so well. Mm -hmm. And then like everything came to an end. And uh, there were things that were explained that were in season one, episode three, Damon's, Mm -hmm. that weren't explained until the the show's finale. Yeah. So like the thing with um, uh, real Elliot's, like constructed world mm-hmm. and the fact that that's actually what we were seeing in the in the dream sequence in Damon's mm-hmm. that was so cool and uh the thing with the key we found out a few episodes earlier that you know that's the key that Elliot hid uh his bedroom key that he hid from his father somehow they just kept finding ways to like put twists in I didn't see them coming but it made everything in the show make sense yeah yeah and the rewatch value is just through I, the roof. <laughs> I need to rewatch the whole show from have, having all the knowledge of the the finale and everything from season four, because um, I've rewatched season one, two, and three uh, more times than I probably care to admit. But <laughs> uh, uh, all before season four came out, so I, I just think it's going to be so cool to rewatch having. Now knowing everything that we know that was kind of revealed in season four. Because mm-hmm. even like the little things that I think about that I can gather from what I remember from seasons one, two, and three, it's like, oh yeah, that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sam Esmail has always had like a really solid plot of where he wanted everything to go, I yeah. think. Yeah, it seems like he had an exact vision from season one, episode one. So we didn't, even though we watched it together, we didn't really talk too much about it. But were yeah. you satisfied with like the last two episodes and kind of how, um, again, spoilers, you should have left by now, but spoilers, how the character we've been watching this whole time is actually a personality of the real Elliot Alderson? How did yeah. you feel about that uh, conclusion? Oh, man. Well, that's not how I thought it was going to go, for sure. I thought it was good. It's a good twist, mm-hmm. and then at the end, finally, um, you know, we don't see the real Elliot, but um, you know, we see Darlene being like, "Oh my goodness, he's back!" Yeah, <laughs> um, so that's fun. But it wasn't anything crazy to me. Like it felt a little bit less consequential than it was in season one, when we find out that um, Mr. Robot is is an alter. Mm-hmm. And it felt less consequential than like season two reveal the, with the prison, but it was still it still tied everything together and it still made sense. So it was satisfying for me, but it wasn't as mind blowing as some of the other reveals. Which for a season finale is like okay, but I don't know. I'm kind of still on the fence about it. Okay, 
I personally feel like it towed the line really well because I wasn't, I really hoped White Rose Machine didn't work. I didn't want the show to go full sci-fi. Yeah. And then it wasn't just like, oh, these whole last four seasons have been a dream. It towed the line really interesting of like twist at the very end, but still everything that happened mattered. Yeah, it was real. Mm -hmm. And even the personality we watched, the mastermind says that like, at the end of the day, we're still a part of them and we're the part that showed up. And I was like, that landed so well for me. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the, you mentioned sci-fi, and there was there was an entire week where um, the second to last episode, or I guess I don't know how do you, how do you want to because technically since the finale was like a double premiere, it's not the second to last episode. It's the, just... the episode prior to the two part finale, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought it went full sci-fi. Yeah, and I was like. I was like kind of not okay with it mm-hmm. <laughs> for like that whole week. I was like, man, how is this going to come together? Like what is even happening in this show? It just totally went from one genre to another and it didn't, uh, a constructed universe inside mm-hmm. Elliot's mind again, which is, uh, I think it was really good. It was a really good way to like tie it up, put a bow on it. If you're a person who's interested in tech uh, and you haven't watched the show so far, tell you that all the tech in the show all the hacks that are carried out are like accurate. Like there's no mumbo jumbo like DOS screens that are, <laughs> that are. It's like legit stuff that they're doing on screen that could actually work in real life. Um, and another concluding remark, I guess. Uh, the world is so similar and like so parallel to I think how many people feel about the world that we live in now. Yeah. That it makes it. It makes it like that much more thrilling to watch all this stuff happen because like the accuracy of like the hacks and the parallelism between our universe and the show's universe makes it like oh this is kind of like realistic fiction it's not really like a fictional show it's like this could really happen which makes it just that much more amazing Um, then it dives into the psychological stuff and it adds that element to it it all comes together in like a really juicy way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just awesome. If you haven't watched the show, do yourself a favor. Mm-hmm. Watch it. Yeah, Even if you're not a tech person, if I may, because the show has so much to offer in terms of incredible performances, character-driven stories, uh, just completely bonkers <laughs> filmmaking techniques that are so much fun. Um, oh, yeah. The show has a lot to offer. Thank you so much for being on, Dylan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'ma get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. Hi, I'm Madeline Peters. I was very influenced by Hamilton, and I will be the first one to say that I'm a proponent for STEM education all the way. (laughs) But in this instance, I found Hamilton to be extremely valuable to history education. Mm -hmm. And it's really given students an opportunity to see a history through a different perspective, and they're really engaged in it this way. I found Hamilton through Clayton. Was it through me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dang. It was. Um, you just would not stop talking about it. And <laughs> the CD you gave us at your grad party had my shot on it. It did, yeah. And 
That was the first song I learned. I learned every single word off of that CD <laughs> um, of that song. Mm-hmm. And then I, when I finally decided to not be cheap and buy a Spotify premium, <laughs> I listened to the whole thing and it was just phenomenal. So you work with kids at like Explore More and uh, through your degree, did you, do you find kids like obsessed with it in the same that way that like we are and like talk more about how you think it's influencing their history education so i actually have a story one of my students um one of my seventh grade students one of the first years i was tutoring actually had memorized every single word to hamilton oh my god and this was when it had pretty much just come out Mm -hmm. and she's in seventh grade (laughs) and she would come in every day singing a different song and make me guess which song it was um so that really i mean Help me build a relationship with her, but mm-hmm. it's something that she'll remember for a long time. It's something that really influenced her education, mm-hmm. and I definitely think that students are just as into it as we are. Yeah, it's awesome, and I wish it was out when I was in high school because I probably would have liked history a lot more. I know, right? It's cool because we kind of went through APUS or whatever, and then. And then we got to listen to Hamilton. I was like, oh, I remember that. Whereas they're going to have the other way around where it's like, oh, this is the election of 1800. I know that song. I know what happens. Yes, exactly. And that's ex- that's why I wish. And I'm so happy for all of the students that get to experience it that way. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's had such a positive effect on our politics because students are now super into voting and they're yeah. more interested in those in our elections and our politics today so mm-hmm. it's definitely had that positive influence culturally mm-hmm. also the diverse cast so it's like i love the tagline of america then told by america now so it's like i feel like anyone can attach themselves to any of the characters in the show oh exactly i love that i was just thinking about that today how most of the cast is minorities yeah and that that is america we're not We're not all white. Mm -hmm. So it's awesome to see that. Actually, one of my favorite things is the One Last Time 44 remix with Mm -hmm. Barack Obama. I think that was incredible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The mixtape is like its own entirely different piece that is so good. But uh, for sure. Do you have a favorite song off the musical? Oh, that's like asking if um, I have a favorite child that I tutor. (laughs) Um, Man, it's so hard to pick. Mm Mm-hmm. The room where it happens is definitely up there. Yeah, I will say that's yeah. probably one of the top three if I had to. But top one, I don't think I could choose. What about you, though? Oh, crap. Yeah, I think it's the same thing of like, it's like picking a favorite child in the sense that like, it probably depends on the day. <laughs> um, but my shot has always had a special place in my heart. Um, room where it happens is amazing. I really like guns and ships and both the cabinet battles as well, because I like hip-hop and fast rap and those are the best examples of that on the on the album oh yeah that's it is awesome because students attach so much especially to those cabinet battles and being that they're rap battles yeah it's pretty incredible that manuel miranda was able to take something that has bored students to sleep yeah they're excited to learn about Mm -hmm. he deserves real mad props for that yeah (laughs) just so incredible and everything he's done politically to get Mm -hmm. people to vote in Especially for Puerto Rican rights, because he is Puerto Rican, and Mm -hmm. he's done so much to get them on the map. And I'll say that he is definitely one of the people that I have 
or that I would, you know, pay tribute to for getting me to recognize that Puerto Rico needs to, you know, get their rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely bringing like awareness to all that using his uh, microphone for good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on, Madeline. Thank you for having me. So I'm Max. I'm a a lifelong friend of Clayton, and I am here to talk about the TV show Hannibal uh, that I think is one of the best pieces of art uh, easily of this decade, I would say. Uh, So the show actually is about, focuses on a different character than Hannibal Lecter, which is the premise of the show for anyone who knows Hannibal Lecter from pop culture. But the main character is uh, like an FBI consultant named Will, who has an ability to empathize with people so much that he can like understand their emotions and kind of like what makes them tick. But in the dark cannibal world, instead of being well, who I'm sure would be a world-renowned therapist with this ability, he investigates uh, grisly murders. And he puts himself in the mindset of killers in order to find out who they are. And that's kind of like just a lay of the land for the beginning. The show changes a lot. So, so how'd you happen to find Hannibal? And I actually... Totally found it by accident. I was, I think we were both a fan of Silence of the Lambs. We had yeah. watched Silence before mm-hmm. the, sh- the first season of Hannibal came out. And I was like, oh, Hannibal Lecter, I like this character when the show, you know, was being advertised. And then I watched the first couple episodes and like kind of right away, I was like, oh, this is something mm-hmm. different. I've never seen something like this. So, yeah. And why do you think it was meaningful to you, to the 2010s? Um, I would say for a lot of reasons. I, I think it was a really... Uh, not unpopular show, but just didn't get as much recognition as I thought it deserved. Yeah. And I, I just felt like it did like a lot of things right. I mean, you always talk about like with film or like the visual medium, like you want to show something and not tell something. Yeah. And it's weird because I felt like that show did that super well. Like mm-hmm. there was a lot of, you know, you could watch an episode and there'd be 15 minutes of no dialogue. It's mm-hmm. just, which was awesome. But then also at the same time, like when characters did have conversations, they were like they talked in riddles it was mm-hmm. you know what i mean there was so much metaphor so i felt like it did both things really well like when characters were talking it was meaningful because it wasn't just like words you had to dissect like what they were saying but then also like there was you know the the shots just mm-hmm. like the symbolism uh, a lot of characters in the show well the main character particularly has like a lot of dream sequences and mm-hmm. hallucinations or what have you things like that and i just i don't know it just blew me blew me away personally yeah i think the story of how like we ended up watching this together is kind of funny because we both were excited for it and we both watched the first season and you liked it and i was not a fan yeah yep and then i was like i'm not watching season two and you said like just watch the first episode (laughs) and i watched the first episode and i don't necessarily want to give it away but the first scene is just like mind-blowing cliffhanger for what the season's gonna be yeah and I watched the rest of this season. We both did. And that is season two of Hannibal is one of the best seasons of television <laughs> yeah. I've ever watched. Easily, I would say. Yeah, that's I think we both thought the same thing when it finished. And it was partially because like that finale, like I think I think you had said like was the best one of the best episodes of television in the season oh, as a whole. Yeah. Was like, and I agree with that, too. And I think I don't know when I don't know what it is now, but I think the IMDb rating a couple weeks after that came out was like nine point nine, something insanely high. 
but yeah, it's a nine point nine still. I have it's, it pulled up. Oh yeah, did you look at it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and that's like, and that's what I think. It's weird because I understand anybody who watches season one and they're like, "Oh, this isn't for me." Yeah, like I totally get that mindset because it the show doesn't seem totally different at first. Like a, the tone seems mm-hmm. like something that you haven't seen on TV, but like what's happening in season one, you're kind of like, "Okay, I get the premise. Like I know what they're doing yeah. every week." But then that doesn't, it doesn't stay like that. Like, you know, it, it radically shifts to yeah. something else. So it starts a killer a week and it seems like they're just trying to like plot out the season. But what they're actually doing is spending all that time just setting up the relationship right. between the two. Right. And then they it's, completely scrap the killer a week. I know. Ex- that's yeah, exactly. Which I, and that's like, it's such a cool show because the show's called Hannibal mm-hmm. and Hannibal Lecter's in the show and you see him a lot and he's in it all the time but he is not the main character Mm-mm. he isn't the main character which is weird because he is so like we were just talking about before every like the acting is so every character is very compelling yes yeah but like him like they i feel like they flesh out the hannibal Lecter character in a way that's n- never ever been done although i can't fully say that because i haven't read the books mm-hmm. thomas harris's books really but the hannibal in the tv show is nothing like Anthony Hopkins, no. for instance, from Silence. So, and like you said, we both love Silence. I think I rewatched it for you. Have to watch this, and that's probably one of my favorite movies of all time. Like it is, it is a perfect movie in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this show takes a character in a radically different direction that is also like so interesting, and it doesn't take away at all from Anthony Hopkins' performance, but also like isn't derivative of it. Matt Mickelson just does his entirely own thing. Yeah, I know. That's it's so great. He's. And that was the first time I'd ever seen him in anything. So I, like, I watched that show and he was talking. So first I was like, what is this accent? (laughs) And then I was like, who is this actor? I've never heard of him before. Mm -hmm. And and now, I mean, I guess he's a lot more popular now. He's in a lot more media. But like, I feel like that was really the jumping off point, which is weird because I feel like it was a show that a lot of people didn't see anyway. So I wonder if it was a show that like, film people and like tv people and executives like watched and really liked but it wasn't necessarily for the <laughs> well it was it was on nbc too which oh my god that's crazy i know and that's the thing if you've ever seen any of the show like with the amount of violence that's in it and what they some of the stuff they do and that's what i mean too like visually like some of the violent scenes are like you've never seen on tv before like you didn't know this could be shown mm-hmm. on television and i know that was like when the first season came out people were like wow i can't believe NBC is airing this show. Yeah. Which yeah, made sense, but you just have to watch it to really understand. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible because I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. Like I want to convince people, but I also don't want to. The parts that are convincing, I don't want to tell anybody. Yeah, it's true. It's hard. So. You mentioned that like this was your pick for best art of the decade, which is how I've been kind of getting people to come on the podcast. Yep. But this show genuinely feels like art. That's you know? what. That's the thing. And everybody that I've talked to that likes the show has said that mm-hmm. like i th- i thought that when watching it ben says the same thing my brother who's also watched it you mm-hmm. say the same thing i've talked to like two other people that are, are actually into the show that like that was that like you get a different sense from it you're like mm-hmm. oh this is i'm experiencing something else you know what i mean mm-hmm. a sense i think i don't know people probably got with a lot of different like television throughout the decade mm-hmm. but it's unfortunate because obviously the show I think was going to continue. There's only three seasons. Yeah. And uh, I think there were plans to do four or five and do some other storylines. But unfortunately, it got, you know, it was canceled. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of like, I, I don't want to say that that 
informed my decision to say it was like really good art of the decade. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like uh, if you make a piece that that isn't somewhat controversial, like are you making art right? Didn't they want to take the show in the direction of like with Clary Sterling and stuff? Yeah, and I know there was like a squabble, some sort, some issue with rights that prevented them also like from fully doing that, mm-hmm. but. It was also the fact that, like, viewership just wasn't, I know, like, wasn't that high, you know what I mean? From, mm. like, if it was just, like, a regular proce- police procedural show, and it was just, like, didn't do anything weird, then I'm sure it would have been on the air forever. But it wouldn't have been an interesting show then, you know what I mean? Yeah. It sucks that uh, it had to get canceled, but also I feel like I was satisfied with the ending. And honestly, I'm just grateful this show existed at all. Oh, because yeah. it seems <laughs> like, it seemed too much for, like, showtime. And it was on NBC. I know that's. It's so weird that they that it was greenlit, and I, I'm just happy that that happens. I know you had also talked about Mr. Robot, I think, for yeah. this podcast, mm-hmm. and that's like the same kind of show where like it you feel like it does something that no shows have done before, mm-hmm. and the network kind of sees that potential, and they're like, okay, just you know, run with that because mm-hmm. we it's something different, so. So yeah, I like when that happens. Yeah, I'm happy to I'm happy to have had it at all in any capacity. Definitely three seasons long worth. Since people did sleep on it, definitely check it out. Especially if you're a fan of Silence of the Lambs or Mindhunter. It seems I was like... going to say it's very much like Mindhunter. Yeah, if anyone's ever watched that show, mm-hmm. definitely give Hannibal like the vibe is very very much the same. Mm-hmm. Very psychological. So yeah, that is definitely might might be my favorite show of of ever. Not Hannibal? just yeah. Favorite show of ever, top part of the decade for mm-hmm. sure. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on, Max. Thank you for having me on. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much to listening to all of those great interviews. I think a common thread has been that the media that's most important to us is the kind that is able to kind of characterize large swaths of our life or mean a lot to the culture as a whole or kind of tie us to the people that we consume this media with so i think that's a testament to art itself definitely and it's interesting to see how diverse the media yeah yeah for sure cool so thanks for listening ryan i heard you have a band now oh that you'd God. like to plug i've got a lot of things to plug um so i have a band called beach tower music you can find us on instagram well the instagram handle the band's called beach tower the instagram handle and the facebook and twitter you can find us at beach tower music uh, i'm the lead guitarist of that band I'm also starting my own solo project, uh, and I've recorded one song. It hasn't been mixed and mastered yet, but it should be by the time this podcast is out to pull back the curtain. <laughs> and um, I don't have a name for the project yet, but you can probably find it on my social media, which is just Ryan Terry on Instagram and Twitter. And um, I'm starting my own podcast, yeah, which yeah. is kind of a spinoff of what you and Ted do. Yeah, It's called uh, You Have to Hear This, and it's my me and my friend Lucas caught it in uh, Fredonia. And we recommend albums to each other, similar to the movie concept. This is a radio show, so I have to edit it down. And I haven't actually edited it yet. But again, first episode should be out <laughs> by the time this podcast is out. Awesome. And um, and I might finish my first short film. And that oh. might be out uh, mid-December if I like it. If I don't like it, then it won't come out. <laughs> it's for a film project for my film class. So, yeah, just crazy crazy time crazy busy awesome so that's beach tower and you have to hear this among many other things Mm -hmm. uh me personally i'm the host of two other podcasts that includes 
You Have to Watch This, a podcast Ryan was alluding to that I do with my co-host and dear friend, Ted Ryan. Uh, we recommend movies for each other each uh, month. It's kind of at a monthly basis right now. but And we're also taking guests this season, which has been so much fun. Ryan's hey. up next, so that'll be great. So be sure to check that out anywhere you find podcasts. I also produce Stories Worth Sharing, which is where a bunch of interesting people interview a bunch of different interesting people about their life and careers, and that one is so much fun, so give that a listen. Again, anywhere you find podcasts. Ethan, anything you'd like to promote? No, but I will be listening to your podcasts. There we go. Your time machine. Uh, No. Um, yeah, and like Ethan said, we will have a top 10 films of 2019 up a week from today if you are listening to the day this comes out. So I'm really excited to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. We haven't had it yet, but... Uh, a lot of movies we still need to watch. Yeah, yeah, a lot of movies we still need to watch. I, prediction, Jojo Rabbit is the best movie of the year. <laughs> He's the only <laughs> one here who hasn't seen Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> We're recording this over Thanksgiving break as like a window into yeah. <laughs> um, the timeline. But yeah, I'm really excited for that conversation as well. So follow all these podcasts and all this art uh, anywhere you can. And thank you for listening. Thanks to Anchor for making this podcast possible. In the meantime, I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. And I'm Ethan Terry. And we are out. What a decade. (laughs) (laughs) 